Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> uh, Dave, you want to grab the uh, these bags? These are uh, Faraday bags made by Silent. Uh, and they make them in all different sizes. There's also a backpack, uh, these little waterproof bags. And you put your electronics in here, and they cannot be you know digitally read or people trying to you know break into your devices remotely. Um, and you can check all of these out at, uh, what's, what's the website for these, D? SLNT.com. SLNT.com. And uh, use the promo code TEAMHOUSE, and you will get uh, 10% off of your purchase. So SLNT.com, and use the promo code TEAMHOUSE to get 10% off your order. And you can also find them at SAP Gear. They're on SAP Gear as well. And then the, the second uh, sponsor for this show that I need to mention, is, I actually don't have any of their apparel here because I actually use it when I exercise. Uh, 10,000 apparel. They make really awesome workout gear, really good workout shirts, shorts. Uh, they make, uh, uh, like, I don't want to call them sweatpants, yeah, really, but like yeah. stretchy uh, pants uh, that you can use for exercising. Uh, my favorite workout clothing company, uh, and you can find uh, them at 10,000 cc slash team that's 10,000.cc slash team and you use the uh is there no uh, so you just go to that website and you will get 15 percent off your order yeah, yeah so you can hit the link in the description or you could use the promo code yeah. at checkout special operations covert ops espionage the team house with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, welcome to episode 190 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with Dave. Uh, D is producing. And uh, apologies to the live stream crew that we uh, continue to have some issues with our internet service provider. We'll work on getting that straightened out. Um, our guest tonight is Jesse Betcher, retired Command Sergeant Major, spent time in 3rd ID, 101st, 5th Special Forces Group, uh, went on to serve in an Army Special Mission Unit as a uh, assaulter, sniper, team leader, and Troop Sergeant Major uh, before he went on to uh, do a Congressional Fellowship, served as the ISOF uh, Sar- Command Sergeant Major in Afghanistan, and then he served as the Command Sergeant Major of 1st Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group. So, Jesse, thank you. Thank you for your patience, and thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, hey, I appreciate it. I just want to clarify, I wasn't the ISAF uh, CSM. I was the ISAF soft CSM. Yes, so thank one, you. One-star level, not uh, 
three star level or <laughs> Thank four you. star level. <laughs> uh, so Jesse, uh, I'm gonna just kick it right off and ask you um, if you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how that took you towards your military service. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my upbringing did somehow lead to my military service, but uh, it was probably a you know not a conventional upbringing. Uh, <clears throat> at least during that time, my parents divorced at a very young age. I was about two. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, they lived close by. So I I would visit my dad on the, on the weekends and during the summers and stuff. So I got that influence from him, which was, uh, quite, quite an influence. And then the rest of the time I was living with my mother, that was a completely different, you know, lifestyle, uh, she was raising four kids as a single mother. So she was working all the time, day and night. Uh, I didn't see her all that often. And then when I was with my dad, even a, as a young kid, it was, we were either out in the woods, uh, you know, hunting or fishing or trapping or uh, in the bar uh, where he was drinking and I was, you know, in the back playing pool or whatever. Um, when I was about 10, my mom moved us down to Texas and uh, didn't really Uh, Didn't really fit in too well down there Um, with my Wisconsin accent, uh, got uh, got bullied a little bit. Um, But that's where I, you know, I learned to uh, after after about a year of taking that, I I started uh, fighting back a little bit. Then uh, when I moved back to Wisconsin, when I was probably 12 or 13, uh, then I, you know, not proud of that, but I I was probably kind of a a bully there uh, myself, not not like steal your lunch money kind of bully, but just like, you know, asserting dominance, uh, you know, got to knock a couple of uh, kids teeth out once in a while to do that. But, um, I think those high school years, you know, probably ages 14 to 16, somewhere in there were the most formidable, at least for me, you know, I don't know if they are for every, uh, young man, but, um, you know, living with my dad, it was, uh, he was a, he's a unique individual, just, uh, you know, tough as leather. Uh, I mean, if you can imagine like a Grizzly Adams kind of guy, except always, you know, uh, drunk and, uh, you know, kind of uh, pissed off all the time. So that's what, uh, that was my lifestyle, you know. And uh, I guess that kind of, you know, I I saw the good things in him though. And I I tried to take away the good things, you know, I mean, uh, you know, always keep your word, uh, work hard, uh, you know, but then I learned some of the, you know, not nefarious stuff, but it's like, Hey, it's, it's okay to do things wrong. If it's for a greater good, it's okay to go poach a deer if you need to feed your family, uh, kind of thing. So <clears throat> that's just kind of, you know, my upbringing, uh, out in the woods, you know, like I said, uh, uh, trapping and hunting at a very young age, even, you know, by myself, I would go hunting and trapping at 10 years old. Um, that sort of thing. And then right after high school, I graduated from a small, really small town in, in Northern Wisconsin. There was only 34 people in my graduating class. And I was, uh, I think I was 34th, uh, in the class. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't the best student. I mean, I wasn't a bad kid. I was always respectful to my teachers. I just didn't, uh, I didn't like school. You know, I had other things to do. I had a lot of freedom, probably more than most teenagers. So, you know, so I kind of took advantage of that. I'd be out, you know, drinking beer and playing poker, you know, all night. So I couldn't make it to school the next day, but 
But, uh, and I ended up leaving the house when I was 16, just because of some differences with my, uh, not so friendly stepmother. Uh, but I realized that the importance of having a high school diploma. So I managed to, to graduate, uh, you know, with, uh, not the highest GPA, but, uh, I did graduate and right after high school, I moved out to Hawaii, excuse me, um, which again, I did not fit in in Hawaii either. So, uh, did not like it out there. My older brother was in the Navy and he was stationed out there. So I stayed with him. And, uh, other than, other than that brother, I didn't have any really military people in my family. Uh, so I didn't, you know, have that growing up or, or know much about it. And my brother was 10 years older. So, you know, he wasn't uh, there to, to share a lot of that knowledge. And, and, and he was, went in the Navy, which is, uh, you know, a uh, well, I wasn't going to go in the Navy, but I think because I hated Hawaii so much, well, I shouldn't say hate, I really disliked Hawaii. I didn't fit in. So I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, that I joined the military, you know, I'm like, Hey, if I go to basic training, it's back in, in the mainland, you know, Fort Benning, Georgia. So I'll get off this, uh, this little tiny Island, you know, it's just, it was so small. I mean, it's smaller than, than the County I grew up in, you know, and I used to, I, I would travel a lot at 16 years old. You know, I was going to rodeos every weekend, uh, all over Wisconsin and then, you know, adjacent states and stuff like that. So I was just used to traveling and doing stuff by myself and having a lot of freedom and then put me on that tiny Island in the Pacific. I didn't enjoy that. So, uh, that's when I joined, I just joined the army reserves though. I didn't want to go full time. You know, I didn't want that commitment. I didn't have that, that sense of patriotism and duty and serving your country and all that. Um, so I just wanted to go to basic training, you know, get in shape and maybe have a little bit of a challenge just to see if I could, if I could do that, you know, I didn't know how hard it was. Uh, it wasn't really hard, uh, but I did not enjoy basic training, uh, cause they took away all those freedoms, you know, that I had just spoken about. So, uh, didn't like that at all. Uh, and then after that, I moved back to Wisconsin and was in a reserve unit in across the border in Minnesota and uh, as an 11 Bravo infantryman. And I was in a scout platoon in the reserves. And that's when I kind of started to like uh, the military a little bit more. We'd go out on our, you know, one weekend a month and the two weeks uh, in the summer in, you know, Northern Minnesota where it was pretty cold and uh, in rugged country. And uh, I, I kind of liked that, you know, so I was, I was thinking that I was going to go active duty, uh, at some point. And then in August, uh, of 1990, I was up at a MTT, uh, mobile training team sniper school in, uh, Fort Richardson, Alaska. And that's when, uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait back in 1990. So I'm like that, that's it. That was a deciding factor for me that I'm going to go active duty and, and be a part of this, you know, big war they were talking about. I want to be a part of history. So as soon as I got back from uh, Alaska, I went to the recruiter and, and signed up uh, active duty in late 1990 and, uh, you know, stayed in for another 26 years or so. And so you uh, went over to 101st Airborne and did some time over there. And then at a certain point, you decided to go to uh, well, yeah, at that point, they were calling it Special Forces Assessment and Selection. 
Yeah. So my, when I first went active duty, I went over to Germany with the third infantry division, okay. spent two years there, uh, had a pretty easy time there. Uh, almost, almost too easy, you know, had a lot of free time and, uh, <laughs> but I didn't get, didn't get in too much trouble. Never, never got any uh, non-judicial punishment or article 15s or anything. So I survived, you know, being a private and <laughs> right. a specialist. Uh, yeah, I got to the 101st and I'm like, okay, now I'm in the real army. Uh, and, uh, Pretty shortly after getting there, I tried out for the scout platoon and uh, really, really liked that. Uh, spent probably uh, two and a half years or so in the scout platoon. But I, had, while I was in Germany, I got a briefing from the, the special forces guys over there, the 110 guys. And I'm like, maybe maybe that's what I want to do. Maybe go be a Green Beret. And, uh, but it just took a while to, uh, to go get a slot for selection. I had, you know, some JRTC rotations and went to Ranger school and, uh, and airborne school and stuff like that. Cause, uh, it's hard to go to airborne school from the 101st. They're not big fans of, uh, of airborne people, but that's another story. Uh, so yeah, eventually I uh, got the packet together to go to SFAS special forces assessment selection and, uh, went out there on January 3rd of 1995 um, and didn't really, didn't really enjoy, uh, selection. Uh, it wasn't, um, I mean, the only part that I did enjoy was when I was out by myself, which was, you know, maybe half the time. The other half was all this stupid, uh, team week and team events and carrying, you know, ammo crates full of concrete for ungodly distances and pushing three wheeled Jeeps and, and all kinds of stupid stuff. Um, <laughs> You know, working as a team and uh, I don't know, at some point I realized I'm not the best team player, you know, but when I'm out there by myself, just walking through the woods, going from point A to point B, following a map and compass. I mean, yeah, I didn't really, I never really had a problem with that. And I, I kind of enjoyed it, you know, you know, you move at your own pace, uh, whether, you know, you can go slow or fast. And if, if, if you go too slow though, you're, you know, they're going to, they're going to pull you out. But yeah, I didn't really have a, a issue at selection during the individual events and then went to uh, fifth group. So back to Fort Campbell there, uh, Bravo company, second battalion. And, uh, didn't really, uh, I know I'm not, I haven't been making any, uh, friends with the, the green Braves Cause I've, I've kind of talked a little bit badly about them in some other podcasts, you know, but I don't know. They're just, I just wasn't impressed. You know, I thought that that at the time that was like, you know, the pinnacle and that's the, that's the place to be. And it, and it wasn't, you know, I was just really disappointed with the quality of, of guys, uh, you know, in the special forces, a teams. Um, and I know that times are different now than they were in the, in the mid nineties, you know, when we're at a, you know, peacetime army and, and it just, uh, I don't know. I just, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like the FID missions. I didn't like the winning the hearts and mind and, and being all friendly with, uh, you know, whatever, you know, savages over and, you know, we were the fifth group. So we had the middle East and uh, some of those guys over there in, you know, North, uh, Northeast Africa and the middle East, I just, we just didn't hit it off real well. And uh, yeah, I had some, I won't say bad experiences, just like some probably classic SF experiences, you know, trying to, uh, you know, trying to be nice to these guys and convince them that, you know, we're there to help and, and, you know, we know better than they do in training and stuff. And I just, 
I remember this one time we were break, we were out doing a field exercise training with all these, uh, you know, commandos and, uh, we stopped for chow and I pull out my MRE, you know, number 12 or whatever. And this, and I'm sitting next to like the company commander or whatever. And he pulls out his like little tin can of whatever goat guts, something. And, uh, so I offered him my crackers, you know, just to be, uh, friendly, you know, good SF guy. And, uh, and he declined, but then he offered me some of his goat guts and I'm like, Oh, no, thanks. And so it's almost dark. And, and I remember I'm eating my food and I didn't even see it until the, it was too late out of the corner of my eye, but he reaches over with his, you know, dirty African fingers and stuffs this food right into my mouth. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, you're not going to spit it out and offend the host nation. Right. So, uh, that's just one of those experiences that I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to do this shit the rest of, uh, the rest of my career. And then another, another event, I think it was on that same, that same deployment. We're going up some really steep kind of craggly mountains on some goat trail there. And, uh, and the guy in front of me, one of the Africans, he reaches back, you know, to like lend me a hand to, to help me up. And I mean, I'm a young fit guy, you know, I didn't, I didn't need a hand, but I'm like, again, I'll try to, to be friendly. So I took his hand and he, and he like pulled me up, but then he, he didn't let go. Like he kept holding my hand mm-hmm. and like, we're, we're like now starting to come out on the level ground and he's still holding my hand. I'm like, uh, no, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to play this game. So anyway, wasn't the best SF guy. And, uh, so I did, I only did maybe two years in, in, uh, in the special forces. And then I'm like, man, I'm probably gonna, I'm probably gonna punch out. I'm probably gonna get out of the army. And I didn't even have a plan. I didn't know what I was going to do at all, but I didn't want to, I just wasn't happy there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I told the team sergeant, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to get out. Then he's the one who told me to recommend that I try out for the special mission unit. And, uh, so I have him to thank both the team sergeant and the, and the warrant on that team who had been to selection previously and they neither made it, but they, they spoke very highly of it. And they, they said that they thought I would, you know, be a good fit there, even though they, they had never served and they didn't make it. They somehow saw something in me, I guess that, uh, you know, they recommended that. And so the very next month I went to a recruiting brief. Uh, that was in December of 97. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. This makes more sense. This is more uh, up my alley. And, uh, and then in March of 98, I went to that selection. And as soon as I got the selection, I'm like, yeah, this is where I belong. Looking around at the, uh, you know, the other students there and the, in the, and the cadre and stuff. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is where I need to be. So that selection was, for me, it was uh, <clears throat> uh, easier, I guess. I don't know. I just, I enjoyed it a lot more. I wouldn't have mind going back through that again. You know, if they said five years later, you have to go back through that selection again. I'm like, yeah, no problem. But if they would have told me I had to go back through SFAS again, I'm like, no way am I doing that team week shit again. But at the uh, special mission unit selection, there's no team, anything. It's mm-hmm. Everything you do from day one is an individual event. And, uh, you know, nobody's yelling at you. You get no encouragement or discouragement. It just, it's all on you, 100% on you. And, uh, 
and I, I like that. I mean, I, I'm not going to say I flourished there, but I feel like I, I did, I did well there. And, uh, you know, the, the, probably the hardest part of that, of that selection process for me personally, and I know everybody has their own experiences, but for me, the, probably the most difficult part was at the very end, uh, when you do, when you're done with all the physical stuff and you have to go to the, uh, the commander's board. And I was in there for about 34 minutes and, uh, it, it didn't go, you know, real well. It, they weren't, they weren't real, uh, they weren't easy on me, but, uh, you know, after that, they said, you know, congratulations, you know, you're, you're accepted. So yeah, that's my story up until then. That's great. Jesse, it sounds like, I mean, you know, you mentioned going hunting and trapping even at the age of 10. So you, you had this very individualistic, like childhood and grew up that way where you were just happy being out there on your own. And you also had a background that I think, you know, hunting and trapping is not, they're, they're, they're not skills that a lot of American youths, uh, Americans have anymore. Did you find that, you know, like when you went to the 101st and you finally got into the scouts and then you went to SF that you had this skill set that, you know, that people just didn't know how to use and you wanted more of that sort of individual type of mission out there hunting and trapping, like doing your thing. Yeah. I mean, totally. I, I kind of, uh, it would have been nice. I think if I had more like survival training, I think, you know, as a, as a, as a kid, I mean, I went and, you know, I'd sleep out in the woods. I remember one time I was 14 and we went on a moose hunting trip up to Quebec and, uh, and it was me and, and my dad and two other guys. And, uh, and I knew when I went out that morning that, that I wasn't coming back that night. I didn't tell anybody. And in hindsight, I probably should have, cause they were probably worried about me. We're, we're way, I mean, very remote end of the road in uh, Northern Quebec. And, uh, but I just left and I, I didn't have, I didn't have any blankets sleep. You know, not, I had a can of sardines in my pocket and like, I put on a little warmer jacket and a book of matches and that's all I had. And I'm like, but when I walked out of the camp that morning, I knew I wasn't coming back until the next day uh, just to kind of uh, test myself, you know? So I haven't really been in any, I've been obviously through some different survival training and seer school and stuff like that, but I, I haven't, uh, you know, excelled at that. I haven't mastered that. And uh, so I watched that show alone and I'm like, man, I'd like to, I'd like to be on that show and uh, just kind of test myself uh, with those. I don't know if you watch that show, but they, they're out there by themselves just with, with basically nothing. They have to find all their food, water, shelter uh, and survive as long as they can out there. So um, I guess if uh, you know, stuff like that, but yeah, the scout platoon gave me that, kind of individual freedom we could be out there and just small you know sometimes we we're just in, in two-man teams and mm-hmm. and uh and i i like that more than being with a with a company size element or even a platoon size element out patrolling and i'm like you guys are making too much noise and and uh you know right. you're gonna give our position away so i definitely like being out there with a very small team or even completely by myself so what year was it that you went to selection for the smu uh, 1998. Sorry. It was, if I said that wrong, it was March. Uh, yeah, it's about a month long or so. So March, April of, uh, of 98. Okay. So and, you were there then fairly quickly to the, to, to nine 11, like, um, well, no, you weren't 98. Uh, three yeah. years. Yeah. Three years. 
Um, what was it like when you got there? Did you like what you were doing? Uh, I loved it. I mean, I, I absolutely loved it. And there's not many things uh, on this planet uh, that I can say that about. <clears throat> yeah. From, from, I mean, immediately from the first, from when we started OTC, the operator training course, which is a really extensive, uh, I won't say grueling, but it's, uh, it's a challenging course and it's, it's, I mean, it's six days a week and I would, I would go to work in the morning and it would be dark when I got there. And when I left it in the evening, it was dark. And I did that, you know, for months, six, seven months. And, uh, man, I enjoyed every single day of the, of the training program. That's another thing. If they're like, Hey, you have to go back through OTC. You know, if they would have told me that like five years later, I'd have been like, yeah, no problem. I'll go back through that. I'll go through selection again. I'll go through OTC again. Cause those, I, I really enjoyed them. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, when, you know, looking back, um, there wasn't a whole lot going on in the world or, you know, in special operations between uh, during that time. So Somalia happened in October of 93. So my instructors, um, a lot of those guys were Somalia vets. And then I ended up going to the uh, squadron that was participated in uh, Gothic Serpent and stuff. So that's kind of, you know, how, how we dressed and, and all, and they would talk about all the lessons learned from Somalia and it was Somalia, this Somalia, that. Uh, so it was good. I learned a lot from you know, the firsthand accounts of the guys who were actually there on the ground. And I, I, they shared their knowledge and experience with me as best they could, you know, but then a couple of, you know, three, four years later, we go into Afghanistan and we're not using Somalia tactics right. or equipment necessarily. Like, cause in training we're wearing these big, thick, you know, chicken plates front and back six, eight, 10 magazines, big med kits, IV bags, all this stuff. But when you start humping up the mountains in Afghanistan, you're not going to be carrying all that kit. You know, you strip down to thin, uh, lightweight body armor, maybe three magazines. You're not carrying IV bags and stuff like that. So, you know, the military tends to uh, focus fight on or fight the last fight war. The last yeah. war, exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's what we're doing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing because it's always you know it's going to be hard to predict your your next war. So. Um, but we made a lot of adjustments and we were able to make them really quickly. Uh, you know, when that unit for like, Hey, this isn't working. Uh, we want to try something different. And we, we could do that. It's not like in the big army where it's a, you know, it takes years to make even small changes. We could make them very quickly. Uh, so we were, you know, flexible and adaptable that way. So I want to, um, you know, talk about the Balkans, but, uh, before that, I got to give a shout out to the sponsors for the show. Uh, Dave, if you want to grab the, uh, these bags, these are uh, Faraday bags made by Silent, uh, and they make them in all different sizes. There's also a backpack, uh, these little waterproof bags, and you put your electronics in here, and they cannot be, you know, digitally read or people trying to, you know, break into your devices remotely. Um, and you can check all of these out at, uh, what's what's the website for these, Dave? SLNT.com. SLNT.com. And uh, use the promo code TEAMHOUSE, and you will get uh, 10% off of your purchase. So slnt.com, and use the promo code TEAMHOUSE to get 10% off your order. And you can also find them at SAP Gear. 
there on Sap Gear as well. And then the, the second uh, sponsor for this show that I need to mention, is, I actually don't have any of their apparel here because I actually use it when I exercise. Uh, 10,000 apparel. They make really awesome workout gear, really good workout shirts, shorts. Uh, they make, uh, uh, like, I don't want to call them sweatpants, yeah, really, but like yeah. stretchy uh, pants uh, that you can use for exercising. Uh, my favorite workout clothing company, uh, and you can find uh, them at 10,000.cc slash team. That's 10,000.cc slash team. And you use the, uh, is there, no. Uh, so you just go to that website and you will get 15% off your order. Yeah, so you can hit the link in the description team. or you could use the promo code yeah. at checkout. All right. So every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Jesse, your, uh, your first deployment with the unit was 1999 to the Balkans. I was wondering if you could tell us what that was like for you. Uh, I mean, it's uh, maybe a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, we were doing the, uh, the piffwickery, as we call it. The, uh, <laughs> so piffwick is a person indicted for war crimes. And uh, so some of us were tasked with going over there and trying to, uh, to capture these guys. Uh, most of them were not in uh, areas we could go, meaning like Bosnia and Herzegovina, but they were in like Serbia. So we didn't have access there. In fact, when I was there, we were, we were bombing, uh, Serbia and throwing some tomahawks over there. <clears throat> but if they ever came across the border into Bosnia, uh, and if we had Intel on that, then we could, uh, roll them up. So that's what we were, uh, you know, doing over there. It just, it wasn't, I mean, it might sound really sexy and, you know, and, if you're the only, if that's the only game in town, uh, which it pretty much was at that time, um, you know, then it, it was, I guess, kind of cool at the time. And maybe looking back, it was, but you don't see a lot of books written on it because it, it just isn't really, you know, worthy. I was joking with somebody, uh, somebody mentioned, you know, somebody should write a book on that. I'm like, yeah, it'd be, it'd be about four or five pages long, probably. So uh, we did, uh, not me personally, but uh, there was a few guys that got rolled up. I did partaken in some of the, the surveillance of, of one of those guys. So, uh, you know, we, we did some good stuff over there. It was, is that sort of like the precursor of what was to come after nine 11, as far as hunting high value targets? Uh, I mean, I, I guess you could say it. I mean, there was, so the, the unit is, you know, primarily for hostage rescue, but, uh, you know, they're pretty good at man hunting also, you know, killer capture missions. So, uh, I'm not going to say that that was the uh, precursor because, you know, they were, they were doing that in, uh, in Somalia, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, probably some, some other places, uh, you know, maybe in, in South America or whatever, you know, uh, hypothetically. So <clears throat> no, it, Bosnia wasn't the precursor, but it was good. It was a good kit shakeout uh, for mm-hmm. some future things. I would say a lot of the, uh, the low viz stuff, uh, because, you know, we weren't, we weren't wearing kit, although we did one time, you know, we were kind of dressing up like some regular army dudes. Uh, I think it was first cab over there. So we got some, 
some uniforms with some first cap patches on them and stuff and you know put on like pfc rank or whatever so we could and got some humvees so we could go out and uh you know play the part but most of the time it was all civilian clothes and and so just configuring your your low vis kit we had bigger radios back then so trying to figure out where the, your earpiece and mic and you know carrying your guns and uh and how to hide that under a under a bosnian leather jacket you now so there was some uh some lessons learned some good camo uh you know lessons and, and some new kit uh came out of that but like i said nothing super sexy worthy of uh some uh you know books well maybe a chapter but <laughs> yeah uh yeah. then you you went back in uh the year 2000 and uh i was wondering what you could tell us about the second deployment over there um yeah that was a little bit maybe i don't know if it's more sensitive but it was just a small team uh there was just four of us and we were just kind of doing some uh uh you know I guess kind of area familiarization. We there was a mission uh, to go into uh, Montenegro uh, to rescue a guy there, and then that fell through. But you know, we uh, kept some guys over there to uh, you just kind of keep up the uh, uh, not the facade. But I ended up traveling a lot, like extensively, to pretty much every uh, country throughout the Balkans. Uh, and then over to Italy as well. In fact, at one time I remember, cause they didn't have the Euro then they, so I had seven different types of uh, currency in my wallet at one time and trying to keep track of all the different, uh, you know, money and exchange rates and stuff like that. Uh, but it, it was a good time. And again, you know, saw some things that, you know, most people will in the U S military don't get to see. I mean, like, like who goes to Albania? I mean, I uh, got to, you know, go there quite a bit. I know other guys go throughout Bosnia and Kosovo quite a bit, but uh, um, uh, Slo- Slovenia, a beautiful country, you know, Croatia and stuff like that. So got to see quite a bit and, and do some stuff that not really sexy, but it was it was good. Uh, I'm not an intelligence gatherer, but I was, you know, gaining area knowledge and uh, information kind of a precursor to the AFO, if you will, the advanced mm-hmm. force operations, which, you know, a lot of people can, they have different names for it, whether it's OPE, uh, operational preparation of the environment, or in layman's terms, it's just area familiarization. So yeah, I did some of that in, in 2000. And did you find yourself taking, I mean, again, you know, working in small teams or by yourself, did you find yourself enjoying uh, working in a sort of like cl- uh, clandestine, low visibility manner? Um, I, I do. I'm not, I won't say I'm very, uh, I won't say that I'm very good at it. I'm definitely not uh, an expert or a master at that. It, but some people are, and I was privileged to develop the work with some of those people who are really good at it. So even though um, I'm, not, I'm not the best at it, I, I enjoy it. So uh, you know, my last probably four years in that special mission unit, I was doing more of the uh, the clandestine type stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's not as, you know, nearly as dynamic. You know, you're not uh, blowing indoors and, and, you know, shooting dudes uh, uh, as much. But uh, it's, you know, it's kind of that little bit sneaky, you know, cloak and dagger and, you know, some surveillance stuff. And uh, I, I did enjoy it. I, and it's something that um, 
you know, there's always a lot of room for improvement. I think with like CQB, you can get extremely good at CQB, <clears throat> but I think at some point, you know, you, you're just going to kind of peak because um, CQB isn't really that hard. You know, everybody does CQB now, everybody, mm. you know, every infantryman in the army, every Marine, <clears throat> obviously some people are a lot better than others, but the, you know, the, just the dynamics of it, uh, the schematics, it's not really that, that hard. So you can only get, you know, you're going to get as good as you can. And then I don't know if there's always going to be a next level, you know, but with the, uh, the low vis stuff, it's, it's always different, you know, every environment and every, every surveillance detection route, every, uh, scenario is going to be a little bit different and a little bit unpredictable. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of like that, I guess, you know, um, the surprise, you know, or CQB, it's like, okay, there's a door, you go right, I go left, left, right. And it's, there's not always, you know, you get some surprises, but it's after a while, it, it's just, uh, gets to be pretty redundant, you know? And then where were you when nine 11 happened? Uh, I was, uh, at, uh, Fayetteville, uh, at my house in Fayetteville, North Carolina, just, uh, racked out on the couch. Some girl called me up in, in a panic. I was like, you know, turn on the TV. And, uh, so that was the first I heard about it. All I had to do that day was drive. Uh, I was going to be a uh, cadre for the next selection class. And, uh, so I just had to go, uh, go up and, and work selection. And, uh, obviously I didn't go in that, that day or go, go to be cadre that day. I hung around Fort Bragg for another week or so, uh, cause they weren't sure where we were going to go or what we were going to do. Uh, they're like, Hey, you're going to deploy immediately to, uh, the Middle East, or you're going to, you know, they, they were, they brought in some U S uh, marshals and gave us classes on the uh, procedures to be an air marshal. They're like, okay, some of you guys are going to go be air marshal. So we weren't sure what was going to happen. Uh, you know, nobody did in those first few days at least. And then they realized once things you know settled down, they're like, okay, you guys are still, we're still going to run selection. So, you know, you couple of guys are still going to go up and do that. So that's what I did, you know, a few days after nine 11 is, is I was working cadre in the mountains running, running selection. And I mean, that must've been kind of a difficult time for, um, for you. I, I think Pat McNamara said the same thing that he was part of uh and when nine 11 happened. And it was kind of like a difficult time for, for a lot of you guys, because you weren't going anywhere in the immediate future. Um, right. But, but we all knew you were that we were going to be, you know, heavily involved in right, this, you right. know, it was, it was the biggest terrorist attack on, on, uh, American soil ever. And we were in, you know, the premier counter-terrorist unit, you know, in the U S uh, if not the world. So yeah, we knew that we were going to be busy, uh, and we had it narrowed down pretty quickly, you know, uh, where we were probably going to be going and, and who was responsible for this and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it still took, uh, you know, about five weeks for guys to get in on the ground there in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, while I was, uh, actually I was back from, from selection by then October 19th, we sent some, some guys in both the unit and, uh, the Rangers and, uh, 
5th Special Forces guys. I think all on the same night, October 19th of 2001, they sent guys in on the ground. But yeah, I was I wasn't there for that. I was back at Fort Bragg at that time. And, and you guys made it over in April of 2002. Yeah, it was right at the end of March, uh, around maybe April 1st of 2002, when uh, me and my uh, my uh, squadron brothers went over there and spent like maybe four months. I think we were there until maybe like late July or something like that. And then <clears throat> we came back from there. And uh, within a short time after that, we weren't prepping to go back on a rotation to Afghanistan. We started preparing for Iraq because, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall there that we were going to be uh, going into Iraq. So t- tell me about that, what that time was like, you know, for you and your teammates, I mean, prepping and getting, getting ready for that, that mission. Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I was just, you know, during, during COVID, you know, there's all the, you know, the military was forced to get the COVID vaccine and stuff, which I totally disagree with. But then I think back to when, uh, you know, I got vaccines, experimental vaccines for anthrax, botulism. I had to get my uh, smallpox because I never had smallpox as a, as a kid, you know, I was just a little bit too old to get that. So, you know, in like December of, of Oh two or January of Oh one, you know, I'm getting pumped full of anthrax, botulism, and smallpox uh, vaccines. But the difference between that and COVID vaccine is, you know, we had targets uh, on our target deck that were, you know, known or suspected to be producing things like anthrax. And if, and if you go in there and you get exposed to that, you're probably, you know, very high chance, probably, I don't know what, 90% chance that you're going to die from that. So if they're like, hey, you can take this vaccine and then there's only a 10% chance you die, yeah, I'm going to take that as opposed to the COVID. Uh, and I know we're not supposed to probably be getting <laughs> political or whatever, but I mean, the COVID vaccine, an experimental vaccine, that's completely unnecessary because even if you are exposed to it, which probably everybody has been by now, you know, you got less than a 1% chance of dying. So I just, I totally disagree with those forced vaccines for the military or for anybody, healthcare workers. Well, anybody. well Jesse, let, let me, I mean, let me ask you then, you know, there was a portion of the 82nd immediate response force that was essentially deadlined and non-deployable because of COVID, uh, especially when they got back from like Washington, D.C. I mean, for uh, for an organization like the unit that is a rapidly deploying unit that has to be ready to deploy to meet America's national security threats anywhere in the world. I mean, what do you think if like two thirds of the unit has COVID and is non-deployable? I mean, so I, I mean, I had COVID in it's, it's not for me, if you're a, you know, a healthy guy and not a geriatric or morbidly obese or all these underlying health conditions, you know, leukemia or whatever. I mean, you're going to get sick for a few Mm -hmm. days and then you're going to be fine. I just don't think it should deadline entire, you know, the, the DRF or, or whatever on call, you know, force, whether it's 82nd or the unit or whoever, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, I just didn't like the way, uh, you know, that whole thing was handled. It, it became the ultimatum where, where guys would be forced out of the service if they didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I have a real, I have a real problem with that. I mean, <clears throat> I just, I mean, COVID like that, that whole lockdown just, it really, uh, it really bothered me more than, than I probably have led on to people. I just, 
the way I saw all of our freedoms being taken away. And I mean, that's like one of probably the single most important thing to me is, is freedom. You know, I can say that because my wife and kids aren't in the room. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and now I see just all these freedoms being taken away and people voluntarily like giving up their freedom. Like, Oh yeah, my, you know, my safety is more important. No, that no, no, it's not because uh, it's really hard to get your freedom back if you just give it away like that. So yeah, I mean, I was not in the military, obviously, at the time, so it didn't affect me. But, my, you know, my wife is. She's a reservist. In fact, she's been on active duty orders for almost a year now. And she she had to get the vaccine. Um, a, a friend of ours who's, uh, you know, devout, religious, you know, Catholic, uh, a, I think a colonel in the reserves, um, she's like, I'm not going to get this vaccine because it goes against you know, I wanted a religious exemption and they, and they wouldn't give it to her. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess because, and I didn't know this, but I guess some of the vaccines they use, I don't know, stem cells or something with aborted fetuses. I, I don't know all the details, but she ended up traveling to another country on her own dime to get a vaccine that was, you know, completely like synthetic, not made from just so she could stay in the military. Oh, wow. And then now, uh, I think now they rescinded that ridiculous mandate in the military. You don't no longer have to. Yeah, they're they're ta- they're talking about. I it. I thought they had. I don't. I don't believe I so. They had. They, I think they've been talking about it. There's about uh, I, I want to say like 800 people in the army who ended up getting kicked out at the end of the day. Yeah, are they going to be allowed to come back in or yeah, anything like that? Yeah, they will because they got general discharges. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we don't have to get too political about that. I forgot what the original. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> no, this this video is no. already demonetized. It's okay. <laughs> no, yeah. uh, no, but we were talking about the invasion of Iraq and, and preparing for that for that mission. Or even, uh, yeah, Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it was exciting. You know, we had, uh, you know, all of us in our squadron had had done some time in Afghanistan, and that wasn't uh, it wasn't super sexy. But now we're talking about you know we're going to be the ones invading uh, this country and. You know, and I'm not going to go into the politics of if we should have or not, or mm-hmm. if they did have WMD or not. That's that's actually irrelevant to me and the other soldiers because we're going to do, uh, you know, what we're told unless it's completely you know, unethical or illegal. So if our commanders are like, "Hey, you guys get ready because you're going to be invading Iraq," then we're going to do that, whether mm-hmm. or not we believe there's WMDs. Like I said, that's ir- irrelevant. So. So probably around December of '02, uh, we, you know, we were uh, training, uh, prepping up for, for the invasion. And uh, so all through the spring and then probably early March of '03, we uh, forward deployed over to uh, Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and we're, we're ready. We're, we've got all of our uh, kit and equipment and vehicles and we're just waiting for the, we're just waiting for the call. And, uh, we got the call, you know, probably the morning of March 19th. And then, uh, so we immediately started making our way towards the berm. And as soon as it got dark, uh, we crossed over, uh, with a little help from, uh, from our good friends at 160th. And, uh, could you, could you tell us a little bit, like elaborate a little bit about that night and what it was like pushing across the berm? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was magical. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's like the stuff that, you know, you watched as a kid in movies. I mean, we're there's a no kidding 
big ass giant berms. So we brought a big like D nine, uh, bulldozer to punch a hole through there so we could drive our wheeled vehicles, uh, you know, cause we couldn't make it over that giant berm with, uh, I mean, it's probably, um, you know, 25 feet tall or whatever. So use a bulldozer punch. I don't know where they got the bulldozer, but, um, we brought some engineers with us up there. You know, we, we had a, a crew of, you know, probably 40 shooters, but then we had another 20 like support dudes, you know, mechanics and engineers. And, uh, we had an armor and, you know, we had different support guys, EOD guys and stuff like that, of course, medics. Um, so we, as we're starting to go over the berm, the 160th guys started taking out guard towers with their, uh, with the daps and the, and the little birds. And, uh, so you're just, I mean, you're watching though, like you're in a, in a movie, you know, they're the rockets, two, seven, five inch rockets are hitting the, the guard towers and, uh, you know, burst of, uh, of, uh, mini guns and, and we just drove across, you know, I don't think there was any of us actually that, that fired around during the initial, initial crossing over. <clears throat> and then, uh, that very next night though, the night of the 20th, when the rest of the army was was making their way across from i guess from kuwait they were coming from so when they were just crossing their berm we were already hitting our first target uh big big target we had some really big targets out there we're just you know like i said maybe 40 shooters but we had a ton of air support fast movers and stuff so uh we could take out uh you know the a lot of dudes with with the aircraft before we went in on foot and you were kind of, uh, I think you were telling me that your, uh, your element made their way to, to crit, but like all on the way you're hitting military targets that had been designated. Yeah, we were hitting targets. Uh, I won't say every night, but, um, probably about every two or three nights. Cause we had, we traveled, you know, something like 1100 miles. Right. I mean, Iraq is really big, you know, it's, I don't know if it's probably like, I mean, it's big like Texas, right? So if you're crossing way on the Western desert and you're hitting different military uh, targets along the way, uh, so we would move at night and then hit targets at night and then we would sleep in the in the daytime and, and rest, you know, do our priorities of work, whatever, uh, maintenance of weapons and, and vehicles and other equipment uh, in our rod site, rest over day site. And uh, we, you know, we just kept moving along, kept moving east towards, and we didn't even have a, we didn't have like a specific target, like, hey, we're going to Baghdad or we're going to Tikrit. Uh, we were just given the mission to move in an easterly direction across the target or across the desert and uh, hitting targets of opportunity and other uh, predetermined military targets along the way. And that's what we did. And uh, around the 27th, 28th of March, uh, we went up to, we started approaching Haditha Dam right there in the, you know, in the, uh, whatever they call it, the Sunni Triangle. And that was very, very heavily defended because even though Iraq is mostly desert, there's still a couple of water features. You got the Tigris and Euphrates, and then you got a couple of lakes in there where they, they dammed it up. And there's actually some real muddy and swampy areas there in between. So you can't just you know, drive across like it's the surface of the moon. You can most of the times, but when you come to those choke points where there's, uh, you know, that river or whatever, or a lake, uh, there's only going to be a few places where you can cross that. So they had those very heavily defended. 
Haditha Dam. There was, I don't even know how many, you know, artillery pieces and uh, anti-aircraft pieces they had there, but it was, it was a lot. Um, <clears throat> so what we would do is we would drive up pretty close. You know, when I say pretty close, I mean like a half mile away, uh, actually probably a mile away. And we would just start identifying and lazing targets. And then the fast movers would just start bomb, bomb, bomb. And uh, we did that for two or three nights in a row. And then finally, we're like, hey, we're not going to we're not going to cross here anyway. We're not going to cross dam. So uh, we we backed off from the Hadita Dam. Meanwhile, I think the Rangers came in there, I think uh, third battalion guys. And uh, we went up farther north to a, near a town called Rawa. And we crossed the uh, the Euphrates there. And again, you know, you drive 50 miles before you hit a bridge. So that bridge is pretty heavily defended. And uh, again, it's like right out of a movie. I mean, we're we're taking out all the the bunkers along the uh, on both sides of the rivers and going across in our light skinned vehicles. There's guys on on ATVs going across this this bridge, and I'm like, man, that's uh, and I'm I'm watching. I'm right in the middle of this. I'm like. This is cool as shit. <laughs> and, and you made your way uh, to, um, if you want to tell us about uh, Objective Grizzly, which you said was like a huge target. Yeah, I don't remember the exact day we hit that. That was up near one of those lakes, uh, Lake Farthar or whatever. Anyway, it was a giant. So again, we're a small element. There's about 40 uh, shooters. And uh, we're like, hey, here's another military target. Um but it's a massive military target. It's like, if you know what our MTC is, the National Training Center, it's like a giant maneuver area, you know, thousands of acres uh, where they do like uh, tank maneuvering and training and stuff like that. And there are, so, there's like a cantonment area with barracks and, you know, whatever their little PX and, you know, a little mosque or whatever <clears throat> area where the, the few soldiers are. So there's not like, you know, 10,000 soldiers there. There might only be, a couple hundred, uh, but it's just a massive area. And they have these giant uh, bunkers for, for their ASP, their ammo supply points. that are just filled with all of these tank rounds and artillery rounds and stuff like that for the training rotations that come through there, just like we do with, with our army. Uh, so they're like, Hey, you guys go, go hit that target. Like, it's massive. I mean, it, it took hours and hours to, to clear all that. And, uh, and again, even though we're heavily armed and our vehicles do have some, you know, M2 machine guns and Mark 19s, and uh, we have a bunch of machine guns and javelins, we're not going to do that with just those weapons. So I'm not saying that we did this all by ourselves. We have a lot of airplanes above us uh, <clears throat> with uh, with a lot of bombs and bullets, you know, to help us away. So when you get, when any of these guys want to try shooting back, a lot of guys just ran away, the, the Iraqis. Um, but once in a while, you know, some guys would try to, maneuver on us or shoot back and stuff and you know that's that's the last you heard from them <laughs> it, it, it sounds sort of like the operator olympics this sort of like thunder run you guys made through iraq <laughs> yeah yeah it was yeah thunder run that's a good one yeah so uh we we hit some really big targets like that and then uh we crossed the euphrates on march 31st of 03 and then two days later april 2nd I know several guys have talked about that, but we actually got, we got attacked by a couple hundred dudes and they had, you know, a hundred or so coming at us and another 
150 set up on an ambush position over in a in a wadi across the ridge and you know expecting us to kind of like run away once uh once you know we were being uh attacked but we didn't run we just stayed where we were and we fought for hours and uh and uh i mean it was it was a really long you know gunfight and uh ended up you know killing a uh, a lot of dudes unfortunately we lost you know one of our guys there otherwise that would have been just a you know a great day but yeah Andy Fernandez was killed uh unfortunately on that day but uh yeah I know a lot of guys have talked about that extensively it's been written about in a few books but I mean it's a you know a big deal then and probably even now you know to, to have like I said 40 50 guys get attacked by a couple hundred and uh but uh, and for the first probably three hours, it was just us on the ground. It took about three hours probably to get uh, some helicopters in there because, again, we're at this isn't the insurgency like a year or two or three years later. This is we're still at war, right? This is international armed conflict with it's our army against the Iraqi army. So we didn't even though we had a lot of fast movers, we didn't necessarily own the the airspace and we didn't have fob set up or anything like that it's just us out there in the western desert so it took uh it took about three hours finally to get some daps in there and then they're the ones that saw all of those dudes set up in the ambush position who'd been waiting for us for hours and then we got the medevac in there to get andy out and a couple other dudes that got wounded and uh and then we ended up bringing some a10s in and a couple of f-16s so yeah we pretty much laid waste to uh to the uh bad guys that day and what was sort of, uh, how did, how did you guys arrive at Tikrit and how was that sort of determined to be like your limit of advance? Um, so, so we ended up, uh, getting, meeting up with, uh, some conventional guys who had, uh, some, Ab some Abrams, some M1 Abrams tanks. And, uh, so by this time, you know, this is probably April, uh, 7th maybe something like that around there. I don't know the exact date on that, but we coordinated with this tank platoon. I think it was four, I think five Bradley's not Bradley, sorry, Abrams tanks. And uh, so we're like, we're going to, we're going to have you guys go with us and we're going to drive into the edge of Tikrit. We had no intentions of occupying <laughs> uh, space there or, you know, gaining a foothold. All we wanted to do is kind of, kind of uh, harassment, but also sending a message that hey, the Americans are here. We just came across a desert, and now we are in, you know, Tikrit, um, the the hometown of Saddam Hussein. So <clears throat> we went into the edge of town, and there's, I mean, there's major highways there, just like there is, you know, around our cities here in the U.S. And there was this big uh, clover leaf, you know, like we have here. And they had it all uh, barricaded with uh, spikes and all this wire and crap like that. But we got up there and put the, the tanks for the tanks up on the, the clover leaf. And then we had our light skinned vehicles as well. And we got up kind of on some high ground and uh, got out some uh, our machine guns and stuff. And just, you know, some guys would, you know, some of the Iraqis would come out towards us with their little, you know, technical vehicles, Toyota Hiluxes and stuff with them machine gun on the back or whatever and they would just get uh basically vaporized by the 105 main guns of these uh of these abrams tanks 
Uh, so it was, a, I mean, again, it was an exciting thing. And, and we felt like we felt really good. Uh, I remember the next day. So we just went in there, you know, killed some dudes, uh, shot up a bunch of stuff. And then we, before it got light, we pulled back out of there. So again, and that was the plan. We, there was never a plan to hold that mm-hmm. ground uh, or invade into, into the city limits necessarily of Tikrit. We just wanted to go up there and show a force, hey, we can do this. Uh, we can come into your town, kill some of your soldiers, and then and then pull out. And there's nothing you can do about it. And we didn't lose a you know anybody. We didn't. I don't even think we had any uh, anybody get wounded that night. It's, so the, you're saying that the uh, Iraqis were bringing technicals to a tank fight? <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they were. I mean, they were trying to maneuver on us and stuff like that because it's pretty obvious where we were. I mean. Uh, but it just, it wasn't working out to their advantage. You know, they don't, they just don't have the technology. And I mean, as simple as night vision goggles, you know, and the few guys that did have like, like we would come up on guys and different military dudes that had night vision equipment and they would be in the box, you know, in the back of the truck or whatever they didn't, you know, or they would wear it around their neck and they didn't have the mounts for, for a helmet. So even if the few guys that did have the equipment, they just, they weren't disciplined enough to, mm-hmm. to use it appropriately. So, uh, yeah, we have a huge advantage, uh, you know, then, and I'm sure, I'm sure we still do now, but, uh, yeah, so we did that. And then the next day, I remember we went up on this big, I won't say mountain, but it's a big ridgeline hilltop, very, uh, not probably tactically sound, but on all of our vehicles, we raised up our American flags and it's like, I mean, it was just a, it was a good morale boost, you know, for like, like, here we are, like, we're like, here we are. We're just in these light skin vehicles, you know, come and get us if you want to. And, uh, I don't know. It was a good feeling. Yeah. And I, how did, uh, I mean, just that curiosity, I mean, you pushed all the way to, to create, like you said, pretty deep into Iraq. How, how did you guys end up getting redeployed from that location and getting out of there? Um, Okay, so we pulled out of Tikrit, went back to, uh, by that time, we had established a, a camp at, at Grizzly, at that target that mm-hmm. we named Grizzly, um, which was their NTC area with all the, the tank training area. So we established a camp there. And then uh, a few days later, we went back into Tikrit because uh now we had those other conventional forces there, some of the Marines and some of the army guys. I don't remember. It may have been, it may have been fourth ID or third ID. I don't remember, but there was some U S army conventional guys, and then some Marines who had made it from the South uh, up into Tikrit, but they had just kind of gained a foothold. So they hadn't really cleared. There was two palaces, two Saddam's palaces there. Uh, one, uh, more opulent than the other. So we're like, Hey, we're going to go and hit those just, just our guys. So we went in there on the, um, either the 12th or 13th, it would have been the 13th of, uh, of April. And we hit the first palace and, uh, and we occupied it. We, we, we stayed there that night. I remember I slept on a couch and that was the first time I'd slept <laughs> on anything other than the, the desert floor, you know, in, uh, a month full month um but i still didn't get a shower and then the next morning april 14th um we went and hit the other bigger palace 
and uh, and then we occupied that as well. And then finally, I finally I got a shower after a month, and I slept on a bed there, so that was, that was pretty nice. Yeah, I remember that. That was the day uh, my daughter was born. I got a phone call. We had one satellite radio, and uh, like, hey Jess, you got you got a call, and they're like, hey, your daughter's born. It's it's a girl. Like I didn't even know at that time, you know, before uh, if it was going to be a boy or a girl. So I'm like, all right, that's cool. <laughs> that's so surreal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, again, I'm I'm just curious. Like, how did you guys like return home from from? Oh there? yeah, sorry. I was just trying to go through the timeline. Yeah, like, yeah. This is, I mean, we're coming. This is 20 years. It'll yeah, be 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Did. Um, so we hit that second palace, and then we only stayed there a day or two. So 16th. 17th of april and then they're like hey this other squadron is here uh you guys probably need a break because we've been going running and gunning non-stop you know for uh, a month and you know which probably doesn't sound like much because you know the next year we were doing that literally you know we did that for years but this yeah. was the first time that we were right. doing it that frequently and we had traveled like i said all the way across the desert uh, so another squadron came in and we kind of swapped that with them. And then we went back all the way back to uh, one of those airfields out there in the West. I don't remember if it was H1 or H3, but one of those airfields. And uh, they're like, all right, you guys can head home. They brought wow. in a, they brought in a uh, I guess it was probably a C-17 out there in a, on a desert airstrip and uh, loaded up and, and flew home. So like it was wild. just, and that was around the 20, probably 22nd of April. So, uh, we were in Iraq for, you know, just over a month. And then, uh, I didn't go back again until September. Yeah. September of 03. So I had a couple months off before I started getting back into it. So, I mean, come on, what's a, what's, uh, you know, as we fast forward a little bit, uh, what was going on with you? You ended up becoming a sniper and you ended up starting that rotation uh, back to Iraq, going back and forth to Iraq. And what are you seeing as you go on these deployments? And what are you seeing in Iraq as the insurgency sort of starts to, to kick up? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it picked up pretty quick. So um, when we went back in September, there wasn't like a, an insurgency. Yeah, it didn't there exist. Was, you know, there was like... I remember seeing the first reports of these roadside bombs, you know, these IEDs that, uh, you know, we'd get a, a picture sent to us and it was like, wow, look at this. You know, they took an artillery piece and they, they did this and they were, they were so few and far between, you know, there would be like, you know, maybe one or, or two per week in all of Iraq. And we would get the Intel updates on, on these, you know, IEDs. So uh, we didn't even realize that that was, you know, like the beginning of the insurgency at that time, uh, you know, we're still, we're going after the deck of cards guys, right? Yep. Those, uh, well, it was actually 54, not 52, but, um, Uday and, uh, Kusei had just been killed in July up there in Mosul, you <clears throat> know, three, uh, with some help from some of my, uh, coworkers. And then, uh, yeah, we're just going, we're, we're manhunting at that point. We're just starting to go after, uh, high value targets. And then, uh, when we couldn't find those, we'd go after whatever other shitbag, you know, that was, uh, looking to maybe be connected to these roadside bombs and stuff like that, that were starting to pop up. Uh, so it kind of escalated 
it escalated pretty quickly. I think, uh, so I was there in Iraq from September all the way until September 03 until January of 04. And obviously during that time, Saddam was captured. I wasn't involved, but I was up in Mosul when it happened. And I'm like, okay, now, now, now it's over, right? right Back right. in May, we declared that all major combat operations are over. There was a few roadside bombs, but now Saddam is captured. This should be the end of this nonsense. We're going to somehow reestablish a legitimate government. And this is going to be the end of the fighting in Iraq. And we can go back to Afghanistan where we know that there's the real guys responsible for 9-11. But it didn't, it didn't play out that way. Uh, obviously, there was just a lot of, there's a lot of people that don't like Americans and don't like the West and don't like, you know, who we are and what we stand for. And so that was just, uh, they saw that as, you know, a lawless place where they could just come from other countries. You know, initially right. it was just the Iraqis, some holdouts of the Ba'ath Party and some, you know, fanatics, Sunnis or whatever. But now you're getting in all of these people from other countries all over the Middle East, you know, not just not just Syria, but, you know, they're coming from Iran and they're coming from Syria and they're coming from North Africa and they're coming from <clears throat> all over the place just for the opportunity to to uh, you know maybe kill an American or kill some Westerners, uh, whether they're on their jihad or they just want to you know get uh, get frisky. So the insurgency really escalated, yeah, pretty quickly, and it it, it didn't die off quickly. You know, it took a long yeah. time to kind of taper down. How did your for like the you know you grew up basically with these you know, Somali vets saying this is the way we do war. And then you went to Afghanistan, which is a different way of doing war. And then you went to Iraq, which is, I imagine, a different way of doing war. But also, not only, but also you're learning as time goes, right? And you're you're changing the way you do war when you go to those places. How did you see the the evolution of your, your tactics and strategies then? <clears throat> Uh, I mean, I don't. So one thing I left the unit 13 years ago, so I have to assume that they're not using the exact same, you know, TTPs, uh, tactics, techniques and procedures now that they were then. But I just don't necessarily want to. Sure. You know, sure. I potentially I, divulge some information. But I understand. Uh, yeah. Some of our tactics, you know, did change because. So, like I said, we are primarily the reason that we were created and why we existed was for hostage rescue. So that's it's different when you're doing a hostage rescue mission than if you're just going out to kill or capture capture some uh, some shit bags. And there's there's no there's no good guys on target. You know, it's it's different there. And you don't necessarily uh, you don't even have to go in in the building. Right. You can just you can just stand outside and, you know, get on a microphone and be like, hey, bad guy, come outside with your hands up or we're going to bomb your house, you know. So where you can't do that with a hostage rescue, you have to go in really uh, fast, flood the, flood the building and shoot the bad guys before they can shoot the hostages. Um, so it's it's a different mission set. So it took us a little bit to kind of learn that because we're so focused on, uh, you know, being very discriminatory in in our shooting and there's a you know there's a lot of times uh, especially earlier on when you know you got you know it's a bad guy and he's running away and you're like well he doesn't have a weapon so you, you know you can't shoot him but then later on 
you know, some of the, the ROE, the rules of engagement change where it was allowed. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, fessing up to any war crimes here. I'm just saying, cause this goes through very extensive. Yeah, legal yeah. Be- because like, what, because it, what they're doing is they're running off target, running up to yeah, they're not a, a, a ledge that lo- overlooks yeah, the target. Yeah. And, yeah. and grabbing, grabbing an RPG that's been stashed up there or whatever. Right. Also, exactly. You know, so, yeah. And, and I'm not saying that that was the norm, but there are some very specific targets that, you know, Intel says, Hey, we know for a fact, there are no women and children here. We know for a fact that everybody on this target is bad. Uh, so then you have authority on some specific targets. Right. And again, only a select few where it's like, you can shoot uh, squirters. So, right. you know, there can be an unarmed guy running away and you are well within your legal right, uh, right. to engage that enemy combatant, even though he doesn't have a gun. Right. Uh, yeah. Because we're, you know, he's, he just threw his gun down and now he's running away. Like, right. oh, I got I got Right. Uh, so we had to, uh, you know, change a, a little bit that way, just in, in our thinking on, uh, you know, Hey, we can, you know, we can, we can shoot, uh, more of these guys. Cause there was a lot of guys early on that should have been shot. That, yeah. That weren't. I'm sure later, you know, they got shot eventually cause they deserved it. But yeah. Um, as, but as far as our tactics, I mean, some of the stuff, like I said, we didn't, we didn't have to land on the X, uh, and go right into, you know, blowing in uh, the doors and windows and, and going in real hard. We realize we maybe don't have to do that. We can land off on the Y or we can do a, an offset and land uh, three miles away right. and walk in, or we can do uh, the, uh, a knock on the door and, and call them out, you know, with the interpreter or whatever. So uh, we, yeah. we learned that we could, we could mix it up too. We don't want to be predictable. And again, I'm not, I don't think I would be giving away any TTPs there because uh, I, I you know, think- some things are, some things are not going to change. CQBs, some things are going to be the same. Like I said earlier, CQB is pretty, uh, it's, it's not that hard, you know, breach door, left, right, left, right, clear your sectors, uh, shoot bad guys, don't shoot the good guys. We've talked on this show a number of times about just how that, you know, how that evolved in Iraq and Afghanistan, how, you know, whatever, ever, like you said, all units were doing CQB at a certain point in time. And then everybody realized, why, why are we doing CQB when there's not a hostage? You know, why are we, you know, flooding this room or this house with personnel when, when, there, when there's a simpler solution, you know? Yeah. Um, even have a, a gunfight from, from the windows is better than being inside, a, you know, a room that's been built up and barricaded and bunkered. Um, yeah, so, you know, Jesse, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we hit some of those too. Yeah. I, uh, if you take me to 2005, 2006, the, when the insurgency is getting really hot at this point and you know, uh, what you were doing at, at that point in time, going over to Iraq, um, with some of the guys. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm drinking a, I'm even drinking a rip it here. You, you are <laughs> I have not how did you did you they, have to ship those all home from Iraq? No, they sell them at the they sell them at the dollar store. I did it not tastes, know that. It tastes just like uh, deployment. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, tastes yeah, like 2000, deployment. <laughs> 2005, uh, man, that was at least for me personally. That was that was the man. That was a busy. Yeah. That was my busiest year by far. Um, spent probably most of that year in Iraq, and we. Uh, we got skinned up pretty good. We had, uh, 
on one rotation. And we're only, we're only doing like about a hundred days at a time, you know, uh, three to four months at a time. Uh, so it's not a full year. And one of the reasons for that is so you don't get burned out. Cause when we go over, we're hitting, uh, literally, I know guys say that maybe figuratively or whatever, we're hitting targets every night. We were literally hitting targets every single night and often, uh, more than one a night. So <clears throat> you can do that for a hundred days. It would be hard, really hard to do that for a full year. Um, but in that April, let's see, April to July of 05 rotation. Yeah, we got, uh, we got skinned up pretty good. And so I was a sniper team leader. Um, and I did most of a lot of time in Iraq up in Mosul. And, uh, in fact, this rotation, I think I started out in Mosul in like April, but then quickly after that moved out to, uh, Anbar province, um, I think stopped in Ramadi for a bit, but then went way out West right near the Syrian border. And, uh, we were based out a little fob out there near the, uh, well, kind of by Al Qaim area. And, uh, that, that rotation, um, I would say probably, um, s- over 60% of our squadron got purple hearts on that rotation. Uh, so just to give you an idea of how, uh, how skinned up we got on June 1st of 05, there was a <clears throat> pretty good uh, firefight where one, one whole assault team got, got wounded. One guy got killed, um, kind of Steve Langmack and then everybody else, everybody else on the team got wounded team leader. He got uh, hit real bad. A guy went through selection and OTC with, he probably got, I think he had like 70 something wounds from between bullets and shrapnel, uh, and then a couple weeks later on June uh, 17th, that's a, so I've actually, uh, I've read about this quite a bit in several different books. I mean, probably six different books. There's been reference to uh, Bob Horgan and Michael McNulty uh, getting killed and, you know, how, how tragic that was. And it, it was, it was a, just a huge blow to, uh, to the morale and to the unit. And, uh, but almost every instant, well, every instance I've read about or, or heard other, you know, third party is not, uh, completely accurate. So I was actually, uh, you know, right there that night and I've never, I've never talked about this, uh, publicly, but <clears throat> I mean, it's almost 18 years ago. So on, uh, it was, a on June 16th on that night, I think it was a Thursday night we did we did an offset uh, landing. We landed a long ways away, farther than normal. It's probably five miles away from the target. And that's because we went in on a Chinook, which as you know, are really loud. So we didn't want anybody to hear us. And uh, we went in with more guys than normally. Normally it was just either my team or maybe another one other team. So not a lot of guys, but in this case, we had five teams going in because it was a pretty big target. And we had watched it for a while in this little village, and we knew that there was a lot of shit bags there. Um, there was a pretty big building, uh, and they had a mortar tube set up in the yard, and we just knew that we were watching these bad guys uh, go in and out uh, quite frequently. So that was the main target. And so that's where three of the teams were going were gonna to be going. And uh, – Right across the street, though, at one point, the ISR, the uh, the drones, saw 
some of the bad guys taking what appeared to be a hostage. He had a black ski mask on and they were taking him across the road to this other smaller house. So that's really the only connection we had to that smaller house. So they're like, Hey, uh, Jess, you and you and the other team can, can have this secondary target. Uh, so I'm like, oh, all right, we'll, we'll take the, uh, we'll take the, the trash target, you know, but one thing I'll say coming into this town. So after we walked in there for a few hours, about five miles in the dead of night, it's, uh, it was just a kind of an eerie feeling when you got into town because it was, you know, we've done this hundreds and hundreds of times. This isn't like, you know, any of us are, are new or inexperienced. We're all uh, pretty, uh, pretty experienced by this time. We've been doing this for a few years, but there was just something real eerie about this, this little village. I think walking down the street, it was just, maybe it's because it was, it was so quiet. It was too quiet. There wasn't even any dogs barking. And there was some little, I remember seeing this, a fighting position, just a few bricks set up on this, on the street. It's a dirt street, like their main street. There's, uh, there's no concrete or thing, but they had this fighting position set up there. And I'm like, that's not, that's not normal, right. you know, to see, yeah. uh, on the main street, even though it is Iraq. <clears throat> so we go up to this, uh, uh, to our target where there's two teams in the main building across the street, three teams go up there. So we snuck into town. Nobody knows we're there. We have the surprise element, right? So we're going to do a uh, deliberate assault with a countdown. So we're putting the explosives on all the, the breach points, and we're going to do a simultaneous where we're going to blow all the doors on both targets at the same time. And uh, on our target, you know, most of the houses in Iraq have a big wall around them, like a 10-foot wall, and they'll generally have a big gate big metal gate that opens up for vehicles and then a smaller, like what we call a pedestrian gate, just a normal door size, just to walk through. So my team was going to take the big metal gate, put a big charge on there and blow that. And the other team was going to take the, uh, the smaller pedestrian gate on the, around the corner. Cause we had identified that in imagery, but when we got up there, that smaller pedestrian gate didn't exist. What it was just, somebody had laid like either an old door or a sheet of plywood or something up against the wall. So in imagery, it looked like it was a door, but in reality it wasn't. So we're like, no problem. You guys can just come through our breach point. We're going to blow this main gate. Um, and then it's a short distance, you know, maybe uh, 30 feet from that gate to the, to the front door of the house. Uh, so did the countdown blew all the charges at the same time. And, and it's a race, you know, we're, we got, we got 10 guys and they're like two teams uh, racing to this after the gate blows, we're racing to the front door. And, uh, and immediately in the two breachers, my breacher, Mike McNulty, and then the other team's uh, breacher, Bob Horgan, you know, they want to be there first because they've got the charges to get the, the door open on the main house. And so they're the first two there. And then it's a, a Navy seal that I had, uh, uh, attached to my team for that rotation. And then it's me. So I'm number four in mind getting, going up there and Mike and Bob hit that breach point at the same time. And, uh, and again, we didn't do anything really a whole lot different than we've done hundreds of times, but the difference was the people who were inside, this was a, uh, turned out to be a, a foreign fighter safe house. And not only that, but they were, they were well-disciplined, right? So they were 
conducting safe house operations. They're in a foreign country um, and they're in a high threat area. So they have, they're, they're up on security. They had two guys awake in that front room and they had left the door ajar. So if they heard anything, they could just shoot through the door or through that open doorway. And, ex- and that's what they did. So from the time we blew that charge on the gate till the time Mike and Bob made to that front door was just under seven seconds. And I know that from the, uh, from the video. And uh, so this is two o'clock in the morning, right? On Friday, June 17th, 2005. And the two guys who were awake inside, they immediately sprayed at that, at that door with AKs. So now you got 60 rounds of ammunition coming and immediately Mike and Bob both got hit. Um, <clears throat> Bob, uh, Bob fell forward into the room and then Mike, he got hit uh, three times and he's, and he said, I'm hit. And uh, so the seal who is number three, man, he grabs Mike and pulls him out. But, you know, now things we've lost all our momentum. Uh-huh. Uh, the breach is blocked and I was number four, man. And now I'm number one, man. So I'm like, uh, okay, I, I can't continue going in there by myself. Cause I don't know if anybody else is behind me cause Mike just got dragged out. So, uh, so the first thing I did is I, there was a big fluorescent light, uh, right there highlighting the courtyard. There's a big picture window. So I'm like, man, we got the rest of the troop right here. You know, now the medics there, you know, the, the troop commander, everybody's right there. So, I immediately pulled out my pistol and shot the fluorescent light just so they weren't all backlit. And I'm like, okay, I want to regain uh, momentum and, and go uh, kill these guys. So I'm like, okay, I got everybody, you know, I'm going through the names and I, I can see everybody or the one guy I can I call on the radio. So I've got my guys kind of, so I talked to the other team leader who's next to me now. I said, do you have everybody? And he's like, I don't have Bob. I'm like, oh shit. So, so I, I peek in the, the door and uh, one, one thing I left out, maybe I should leave out because I, I felt kind of stupid at the time, but the way the, the, uh, the entryway was this little kind of alcove, you, you went through one door and then another door. So there's a concrete, just a small little vestibule, maybe six by six. So that's where I was standing. And I remember the, the wall right next to me uh, exploded. And then I'm like, well, what was that? And then it, and then it happened again. And then a third time I'm like, Oh, that's, that's machine gun fire. But I was embarrassed that it took my brain, you know, I mean, three rounds from an AK, you know, that you're talking less than three tenths of a second, but it took my brain, yeah. you know, a quarter of a second to process that those, the wall was exploding next to my head because of machine gun fire. So I don't know, I don't know how I didn't get shot, but I'm more surprised how the seal didn't get shot because he was actually in front of me um but uh so i'm like okay bob's in there but i really wanted to uh regain the momentum and go in there throwing a very large uh uh thermo thermobaric yeah is that is that a that's not classified right nah Um, they're out there i've talked about it so i hope it's not no you can look it up on wikipedia yeah (laughs) Okay, so um, we'll say hypothetically, uh, yeah. if I had a thermobaric grenade, that's right. what I wanted to use because they're freaking devastating. Yeah. Uh, in a, you know, compared to an M67 fragmentation grid. 
So I'm like, if we're going to regain the momentum and go in here and kill these guys, I want to throw this thermal barrack and get it deep in house, but I can't because Bob's in yeah. there. Bob's in there. Yeah. So I'm like, so I'm thinking I Bob's now he's in my way. He's blocking the breach. He's, he's slowing us down. So I went in there and I dragged Bob out, got him out into the courtyard. And then I got the rest of my team and whoever's left from our team. And I'm like, are uh, you guys ready? I said, I'm throwing a thermal barrack. So I went in as deep into that first room as I could and threw it all the way into the kitchen. And, uh, and it blew every window out of that house. Yeah. Every door that was open got shut. Every door that was shut got blown open. They're just uh, they're a pretty cool uh, little piece of kit. Uh, but when I did that, or right before I did that, at some point, the four dude because there was four guys inside the house, two awake, but the other two got woken up right after that. We didn't know it, but they ran out the back door. Luckily, we had a ranger blocking position set up at that corner. And they shot and killed all four of those dudes. But we, uh, so then we went in and, and cleared the house. And that house was, I mean, it's, you talk about a safe house. Like they had RPGs lined up, PKMs, RPKs. Uh, it, we it had an upstairs and every room upstairs was barricaded with sandbags and, and fighting positions inside, inside the house. Uh, so it was, uh, it was pretty hairy. But we get, and then we get up on the roof. And, and at the time we didn't realize that the whole freaking village is bad. Like they're all, they're all bad. And we didn't, we didn't realize that. So I'm not like blaming anybody or saying we got bad intel, but we, we knew the two houses we were going to were bad. We just didn't realize that every house on that street and probably everyone in the village was uh, also bad guys. Uh, you know, we didn't realize at the time that, Hey, there's no women or children here. And, and every dude is, uh, you know, age 18 to 40. And uh, so, yeah, we, so we ended up getting in uh, pretty, not extensive, but a few pretty good gunfights from the rooftop too. Because uh, like the guy at the next house, you'd see him peek up out of the window. And one of the things that, you know, I would sometimes do is when you get the looky lose in the window, you just put a round through the, the top corner of the window uh, and then you don't see him anymore. Right. That's what I know if they're a normal person, if they're just an innocent homeowner looking out the window. But if you're a bad guy, uh, you're now going to you're going to come back up and look and you're going to try maneuvering and you're going to. So when those guys came back up and now they have guns. So it was a pretty extensive gunfight from the rooftop, you know, to the next house and then the house down. You know, so we're shooting at houses pretty much all around us except for right across the road where the other three teams are, they had a complete dry hole. There wasn't a single person oh, wow. in the, in the primary uh, target house, you know, but ours was uh, the main one. So, so Bob, um, Bob never regained consciousness. He had taken a round. Uh, he had a pretty big beard and he took a round in, in the neck, right in his beard. And uh, you know, Mike, uh, unfortunately <clears throat> didn't, didn't make it either. That first round hit him in the, in the left shoulder he's a he's a left-handed guy that spin him around so then he caught one through the side mm-hmm. missed his place and then he caught a third one in the femoral artery so uh, unfortunately both mike and bob died that night um but yeah i've never uh never really talked about that i might be leaving out a few details but uh yeah so 
you know, killed everybody in the house, killed the neighbors. And, uh, and, you know, another thing watching when we watched, you know, the video later, cause we have drones up there. Um, when we breached our gate, like three houses down, immediately machine gun fire came from the house through their gate. So that was also another, you know, safe house and they were up and ready. Uh, and they just had this technique. They're like, Hey, if you heard an explosion, just start shooting at the, at the door because that's what they do. So, uh, after that, you know, we did, uh, you know, change, change up some of our tactics and techniques quite a bit to make sure that, you know, we weren't going to, uh, do that again. But like I said, it's not like we made a mistake or, or screwed up or did something wrong. Cause what we, what we did that night, we had done hundreds and hundreds of times before, uh, Successfully, but, you know, we yeah. just, yeah. So ISR, your ISR had seen those guys moving from the main house to your house, but they, but, well, but, but they, but they weren't like on station long enough to see that, that the first, the main target was everybody left. No. Yeah. They only saw there was some, all that activity, more tube, all kinds of known bad guys going in and out of that main house. But yeah. there was only one time where they saw him driving what appeared to be a hostage over to, uh, you know, our, our target. And that yeah. was the only connection that they had. So they didn't expect much to be there, but turns out that's where, uh, yeah. you know, the bad guys were. Yeah. And that, that, that turned out to be something of like a, uh, a, a, I don't know, I hate to say it, but like a, a watershed moment or, a, or a inflection point for the unit losing, uh, McNulty and Horrigan. Yeah. And again, I, and I'm not, I don't want, let's see, I don't want to take away or, you know, diminish anything about those two guys. They were incredibly uh, talented operators and it was a huge loss, of course, but I just, I didn't understand why, it, you know, it's been written about it in, in all these books and people talk about it. I'm like, like it was tragic. Yeah. But what, what makes that more tragic than, than any other operator's death? You know, two months later, there was a, an incident where three operators were killed on the same day in the same, uh, you know, really huge, uh, improvised explosive device. And, and that's not talked about with the, you know, compassion and, you know, empathy and sympathy the way Mike and Bob were. So I don't, I don't, I don't understand it completely. I mean, it was tragic, but I mean, uh, you know, I don't, <clears throat> I mean, Bob was getting, he was, there was his last appointment. He had, he was retiring. He already had his paperwork in to retire. He's just like, ah, oh, let me go on this one last deployment because he wasn't normally one of our squadron dudes. He was a, he was a senior dude from another squadron, but he just wanted to get in one more deployment. So that's why he came over to uh, our squadron for that one. And they're like, Hey, you're going to be the breacher, which is normally kind of a, a newer yeah. uh, job for a, a younger, newer guy, <clears throat> not a really seasoned guy like Bob was, but that's why he's the breacher because he's like, I'll do whatever job you need. I just want to go and, and one more deployment, get in fight, and, you know, uh, for God and country. And so, yeah, I mean, great American. And, you know, Mike, I mean, he was a phenomenal operator. He hadn't been there all that long. In fact, he's one of the guys I put through uh, selection in, in 01, you know, right after 9-11. And I had to go up there. He was he was went through selection then. So he had, you know, been in the unit a couple of years. He had just recently come over to uh, – uh, actually, no, he had been on my team on the sniper team for about a year, probably just over a year. So not a super new guy, but, uh, had a really good, uh, history, really good reputation <clears throat> even before he got to 
the unit, you know, he was in the 101st, he was in the 25th ID and just, uh, you know, his former uh, co-workers there still speak very highly of him. And when you came back home from this trip, as you had mentioned, uh, your squadron and the unit had taken some pretty serious casualties and you fell in, you, you took a team leader position on a team that had been, you know, uh, they, they were all WIA, I believe, uh, correct? <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, yeah, we got back from that uh, deployment in July of 05. And, you know, we had, you know, we weren't even there for our own, you know, the, the funeral ceremonies, memorials, services, and all that stuff for our teammates, you know, so uh, just one of the the ways of the war. Um, but yeah, then we took kind of an extended, uh, you know, leave and, uh, the squadron paid for us to go on a, on a kind of, uh, decompression trip up to, uh, we went up to Gettysburg and saw some other sites, went to, uh, the white house and a few other places, you know, and, and did some stuff just kind of, uh, as a, I don't know the word when you're, um, just to like get us away from readjust you know, a little Fort bit, brag a little bit. And then, uh, but right after that, so by like August, um, yeah, that team I mentioned earlier that on June 1st of 05, got the whole team got uh, shot up. They want, they now needed to reconstitute that team. So there was one guy, original member of that team who just had a kind of a minor uh, wound. So he was able to, to recover and come back to the team. But <clears throat> they're like, hey, Jess, you're going to go over and be the uh, team leader on that on that assault team. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Because I had already been a team leader on a sniper team for probably over two and a half years. So I knew that my time is up. And uh, so now they're going to give me a whole nother year as a team sergeant, which is in my opinion, the best job in, in the, in the entire U S army. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. But now I got brand new. I had to get like a hodgepodge of, of guys, you know, a couple guys from other teams. And I got two brand new guys just out of OTC, uh, and then, you know, another two months later or so, right, right back to, uh, to Iraq, back out to, uh, actually we went to Ramadi. So we were based pretty much out of Ramadi for that rotation. I mean, I, I don't know how you remember it, Jesse. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I mean, was, was that time frame like a, just a blur of operations as you guys were just hitting it so hard? <clears throat> Uh, I mean, it didn't seem like it at the time. It's not like we were, you know, necessarily felt overwhelmed at the time. It was, uh, it was just, it became a routine, a pattern. You know, like, mm -hmm. hey, we're going to deploy for 100 days, and then we're going to come home for uh, 200 days, uh, or, or actually less than that. We're, we'll come home for about 170 days, mm -hmm. and then we'll go back over for 100 days. And we just, we did that for literally years. And uh, so, I mean, it was enough of a break. I, I guess, um, I don't know. It didn't seem really overwhelming to us at the time, but there were signs and symptoms that it was starting to take, you know, an effect, I think an emotional effect on, on a lot of guys. And, and so you would see guys like good operators who'd be like, you know what, um, I, I think I'm done. I want to go work and, uh, you know, try to get one of the office jobs, maybe at our research and development office, or maybe in the, the training, uh, area or, or something like that. <clears throat> and you're like, what, what do you, what do you mean? What do you, what do you need a break for? You know, you just had a, you just had a two weeks leave, you know? Uh, <clears throat> so I wasn't, I probably wasn't 
real good at picking up on, on some of that. Even my own guys, you know, if they were suffering a little bit of fatigue or whatever, uh, it was happening, but it wasn't that obvious at the time. It, I think it took a few years later to to realize, man, that really that really took a toll, uh, not only you know mentally and emotionally, but it like physiologically and. <clears throat> Uh, I think a lot of guys have, uh, I talked about another podcast, the operator syndrome, <clears throat> excuse me, which I believe is a, a real thing that often gets misdiagnosed as, as PTSD because it has a lot of the similar uh, symptoms. Um, but I think TBI, especially with, uh, you know, the, the assaulters who are mm-hmm. in very close proximity to hundreds, if not thousands of you know, explosive, concussive, explosive blast. Uh, so they might not be real big, all of them. Uh, and if you're outside and get enough standoff, you know, in the, in the open air, but when you're putting a pretty big charge on a mm-hmm. door, on a metal door inside a building and you don't have enough area, you know, you can only get eight or 10 feet away and you're like, Oh wow, that, that kind of rang my bell. Uh, and that hurts a little bit. You don't maybe think about it. You continue going, doing your CQB and clearing the house, but you know, when you do that over and over and over, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of times, I think it's going to, yes. you know, shake your brain a little bit and cause some little ruptures of capillaries and stuff. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I think that over time in the years that that adds up and, and you might not have the effects right away after mm-hmm. that deployment or even the next year. But I think, uh, you know, several years later, and I think that that might be one of the contributing factors to, uh, you know, the, the high diagnosis of PTSD and mm-hmm. even unfortunately, you know, the, the higher levels of uh, suicide rates we say mm-hmm. that we're seeing. So I don't know, just my theory. I'm no medical expert. We've talked to people who are like pretty medically savvy on that and, and what, what you're saying lines up with them. And I, and one of the challenges in this community is because you are exposed to so many breaches and so many, you know, uh, all, the time all the time that a lot of times uh tbis are either mixed diagnosis post-traumatic stress or the two blend together where they can't really tell where the symptoms of one merge with the symptoms of the other and you're right it's just this cumulative effect over time even once you're far removed from that environment yeah yeah i can uh, i can speak to that i think i think my <laughs> kids can too they're like yeah dad has some anger issues yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. It can be a little bit irritable, yeah. I think, sometimes. But um, yeah. Yeah. Were, were there any uh, significant ops that kind of stand out in your mind from that time frame, 2005, 2006, after that, when you were a team leader? Uh, I mean, the, the Mike and Bob one, you know, obviously is sticks out more than others. You know, I mean, I've, I've ran that through my yeah. head, you know, yeah. tens of thousands of times. And, Again, you know, the shrink would be like, oh, you, you have recurring thoughts of that. You must have PTSD. Well, I was just trying to, you know, play it back. It's not like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's, I don't think that's uh, PTSD. But I mean, the ops do, uh, they did tend to blend together. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I couldn't even tell you, you know, pr- within the closest hundred of how many uh, of those, <laughs> you know, direct action, yeah. high risk missions that I've done all of them, you know, involving, uh, explosive breaches, almost all of them. Uh, so, I mean, some were, you know, I guess some were more memorable, usually the ones where you have, where there's gunfire exchange, 
you know, those ones are more memorable. And I think, I think some guys tend to exaggerate. uh, Well, I know that they do because I mean, I was, I was involved in a lot of missions and I know how many of them involve gunfire and uh, it's not, it's not that high of a percentage. Uh, You know, some guys are like, yeah, we're getting in gunfights every night. Well, then I think you're doing something wrong if you're getting in a gunfight every night because, uh, you know, out of a, out of a hundred targets that we hit, literally there might be, uh, definitely less than 10, uh, you know, I would say between, uh, I don't know, six and eight, maybe somewhere in there, six, so six and 8% might involve, uh, some gunfire. Um, and that's because, you know, we're just, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to sound arrogant, but we're really good at, at CQB and we use that speed, surprise and violence of action. So, uh, they, that works, you know, if you go in, uh, with surprise and really violently and quickly, you can overwhelm the enemy, um, you know, so rapidly that they just, they just don't have time to, in most cases, they don't have time to grab their gun and, and, you know, fight back. And most of them don't want to, they're like, they realize that all of a sudden, you know, an explosion, explosive, uh, explosion goes off on your door and a flashbang comes in and now there's four dudes there with, with guns in your face. Where, like, yeah, yeah. You really want to grab a gun and try to, you know, shoot, um, you're, you're going to die. So, I mean, guys realize that. And a lot of times they won't, they'll have guns on them. They'll have guns in the room and they'll, but they'll, they know to, to get away from the gun because they know that we're, you know, disciplined and we're, we're not going to, you know, shoot a guy who's standing there with uh, no gun with his hands up. Uh, that's not, uh, that's not what we do. That's what they do. You know, they don't give a shit. They'll shoot, they'll kill women and kids or whatever, innocent civilians, you know, that's what makes them terrorists uh, and makes us the good guys Yeah, uh, because we don't do that. We're very selective and discriminatory, what, uh, but what, the guys, sometimes they do, they want to, you know, they might hear the helicopter coming 30 seconds out and they'll have time to grab the gun and they'll take some pot shots and, and whatever. And they, you know, that's, that's going to be a bad day for them. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the unit, like, sending you guys on a trip to, like, decompress. What, what, was the command starting to realize that guys had a shelf life? Well, not necessarily a shelf life. That, that, that even though everybody's living their best life and living their dream life, they still need time to come down from this? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that they did because... Uh... On that particular, you know, in 05, that's when, because that's, that's unusual to just like grab the whole squad and be like, Hey, we're going on this field trip team building, like relaxation kind of thing on a tour of, you know, personal guided tour of Gettysburg and and a few other monuments in in different places in DC and stuff. I mean, I'm like, I've been here a few, you know, I've been here for seven years now. This, this hasn't happened before. Uh, So that's unusual. So the, the squadron uh, CSM at the time was a guy named Bob. Bill Thetford, who went on to be uh, JSOC CSM and then the SOCOM CSM as well. So uh, good guy, smart guy. And he had also a Somalia vet. So I remember him talking to us like after Mike Bob got killed. And he was like, you know, he had some some empathy. He's like, he's like, hey, you know, after Somalia, um, you know, we had six guys get killed. And for us, we you know, we packed up and, you know, the Clinton pulled them back. Uh, so they left Somalia within, 
I think within a, probably a few days after that, and then that was it. They could go on with the recovery and, you know, they were back at Bragg and back in the families and Bill's like, you guys can't do that. Like we're, you know, we've been doing this for years and we're going to continue doing this for years. And, you know, you just lost two guys and, uh, and we have to go back out. In fact, right after Mike and Bob got killed, we went and hit another target down uh, that same night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we brought the medevac in and got those guys out. We went and hit another target. And, uh, you know, I I think it, it affected, you know, I could see some guys, they were maybe, you know, you could tell it was on their mind and stuff like that. And I'm like, I don't know, it kind of bothered me because I'm like, you know, you, that that's over. That's part of that's part of combat, you know, that's been happening for, you know, guys have been in combat and war for thousands of years and you can't just, you can't just shut down, you know, right. you can go mourn and think about it later when you're back at the fob or back in the States or whatever, but not when you're still kitted up right? and it's, you still got bad guys around you and we're going to hit another party. You got to, you and, know, got to stay in the fight. And you can't take it the other way where it's like, all right, we're going to get some payback no matter what the circumstances on the other end are. Yeah, I mean, but that, so the next target wasn't like the next building. It was, we had to, uh, we actually loaded up in helos. Right. Flew to, you know, right. another couple miles away. So it wasn't like payback or retribution. We'd already killed like everybody right. in and around that house. But, like, but that, we killed like everybody. But that's what there. I mean though, is, is you have to watch for guys carrying that. It's like, I don't care who it is out there. I'm just going to like, Oh, okay. I got, I got mine. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I I never I understand what you're saying, but I never I never saw that. You know, yeah, there was uh, there was another incident uh, February third. So just had the anniversary uh, February third of two thousand six. Uh, um, we had a guy get killed in, in Ramadi, and uh, and it took about a week to figure out that whole put together that whole target set of who the guys were and who was responsible and where they were located. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, Lance Cornett got killed. Anyway, when we went back in a week later, I'm not going to say it was retaliation, but we probably went in a little bit harder, uh, than, than normal because Mm -hmm. we knew that these were the guys who were responsible for killing Lance a week earlier. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of like, we weren't really like being nice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You didn't care about the call out. No, we didn't, we didn't do the call out. <laughs> so yeah. when, uh, after you did your team leader time, you had this pretty unique opportunity uh, to go to OST. I, do you want to tell us about what that was and, and what that job was for you? Um, yeah, that's a little bit sensitive so so ost doesn't even exist anymore um it used to be a thing it was called the operational support troop and it was uh, just kind of a little bit more like less overt full kit nods m4s it was a little bit more low vis Mm -hmm. type of operations but it was still um they were all you know operators there was no uh it wasn't support guys um just a little bit of a different mission set, maybe a little bit less dynamic and, and less uh, sexy, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, you, if you did a rotation, you might only do, you know, 
three or four hits uh, during a whole rotation, you know, one or two per month, as opposed to, you know, 45 per month if as an assaulter. So a um, little bit different uh, line of work. But I, like I said, you know, I think I said before, I, I wasn't necessarily really good at the low vis stuff. And uh, but I, I do enjoy it. You know, it gives me uh, some pleasure to to be able to sneak in a place and in a disguise or, or whatever uh, and not be recognized. Um, so, yeah, I probably don't want to go into a whole lot of specifics on on the you yeah. know, mission sets here, but it's it's a valuable and I, I don't know what they're doing with it now. Like I said, I left there 13 years ago. Uh, I don't know where they're at with the program and stuff, but um, I, I liked it. I thought it had a lot of potential. Unfortunately, whenever you get a new commander, they want to kind of like take their two years and change this and change that and change that, regardless of if this thing has been working and it's made progress. So I don't, I don't know where it's at right now. Uh, but yeah, that was a, that was a, a good time. I spent four, my last four years in the, in the unit doing the, more of the clandestine type, uh, low vis type of stuff. That's a, yeah, pretty cool capability. And I, how, how then did this whole congressional fellowship thing come along for you? I mean, I don't think too many people are even aware that this program exists. Um, yeah. So I wasn't aware of it, uh, until I got an email. So in, in, uh, it was probably March of 2010 and I was just coming up near the end of my, uh, my troop star major time. And I was also approaching 20 years of active duty. So I had, my plan was to, uh, to retire. And, uh, I mean, that, that had been my plan for, you know, since I got to the unit, I had laid out my 10 year plan, 12 year plan. I'm like, okay, here's what I'm going to do, uh, in this timeline. And then at 20 years, I should finish my troops army time and I'm going to, I'm going to retire. And I was like, right on track, like, you know, to the, to the letter almost. And, uh, and then we get this email from, uh, I think it was from Bill Thetford, who at this time was the, he was the unit CSM. And uh, it's like, hey, this congressional fellowship program, it's been around for a long time, at least, you know, since probably the 60s, maybe even the 50s, but it only been open to officers, uh, senior captains, junior majors, where they get some training and they actually go and work on Capitol Hill, be a part of the member's uh, office, either a congressman or a senator as part of their staff. Anyway, in 2010, uh, the Sergeant Major of the Army, Preston, he said, hey, I want to open this up to senior non-commissioned officers. I want to get two E-9s in this program because they had attempted it in 2009, kind of last minute. They actually did. They took, uh, they took an E-9 and an E-8, a female. And uh, I think they were already up in DC and they're like, Hey, why don't you go? We're going to put you in these members office, but they didn't give them any training. They didn't, they didn't send them through the whole program. They just put them in there for a couple months as kind of a trial. And uh, I, I guess it worked. Okay. So in 2010, they wanted to do it the, the full program. Um, the problem is uh, they, they didn't put the word out until like late March, early April of 2010 
and the program started in May, early May. So you had very little time where all of these officers, they were planning this for probably years as part of their career path. Right. And they had their applications in, you know, six, eight, 10 months earlier. And so I get this email uh, and I, I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And I remember going home and I just kind of casually mentioned it to my wife. Like, hey, they got this congressional fellowship. They're going to open it up to a, a one or two E9s. Uh, and she's like, and I was just was mentioning it as like a topic over dinner or whatever. And she like, uh, she's like, Oh my God, you, you have to do this. Let me see what's the, what's the prerequisites. And she read through and she's like, well, you meet all these, you know, you, you have this amount of time you in the army, uh, you had to have a certain amount of like number of deployments. You had to have a bachelor's degree. You had to have a few other things. And she's like, you have all this, you meet all these requirements. She's like, you have to do this. I'm like, what, what, why would I do that? She's like, because no, you know, nobody else does it. Plus you get a free like master's degree from George Washington university. You know, that's worth a lot right there. So, uh, you know, I, I took her advice and I'm like, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll apply, you know? Mm -hmm. So I did, I applied, I went, you know, jumped from my ass scrambling to get all the letters of recommendation and all my transcripts and all my, I had to get, you know, my last like five NCOERs. Um, that's a non-commissioned officer evaluation report for you non-Army people. I had to get my last five of those, but all of mine are, are stamped secret. So I have to get them all redacted and go through this. So it was an ordeal, but I got a whole packet together, submitted it. And uh, I did that right around uh, <clears throat> the end of April, uh, mid, mid to late April. And then... Uh, I get a call from Bill Thetford, who was up in the office of the Sergeant Major of the Army in the Pentagon. And he's like, hey, uh, he's like, yeah, you're the, you got selected for this program. And I thought he meant, you know, I'm one of several who has to go up maybe for an interview or whatever else. I'm like, oh, so is it an interview? He's like, no, you are, you're the guy. Like you're the, they're only selecting one and, and it's you. So you have to report on, on May 10th. And like I said, it's like April 20th, 28th or something like that. It's late April. I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, so I, that immediately like changed my whole trajectory for my life plans and my retirement and everything. So I, I cleared the unit. I packed up everything and cleared the unit a week later on, on Friday, May 7th. And on Monday, May 10th, I reported into, uh, my new, uh, well, it's weird how the orders work. I was actually, my orders say I'm assigned to some student detachment in, in uh, South Carolina, Fort, uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. So my orders say uh, student detachment, Fort Jackson, South Carolina with duty at OCLL, Washington, D.C. So I've never been to Fort Jackson, but even though my <laughs> orders say that. So I reported into the uh, officer in the Pentagon and they're like, okay, go you know, go buy some books and go over to George Washington University. You're a full-time student starting like tomorrow. Uh, so I, I did that as a full-time student for the next, um, well, the rest of the year from May until December. And then on January, I got, uh, I started working in uh, Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison's office, um, you know, on, on Capitol Hill. And I did that for a full year. I still had a few more classes to finish up. I didn't graduate until like may uh but yeah i was a full-time 
congressional staffer. I mean, I was still a U.S. Army soldier. I just never, I, you know, I wore a suit and tie. And uh, I was still getting paid by the Department of Defense, by the executive branch. But for all intents and purposes, I worked for the legislative branch. Uh, and it was, a, yeah, it was a super, I mean, very unique experience. Obviously, I think they still have the program. I still think they put one or two uh, E-9s in that program every year. And then probably another, you know, 15 or 20 uh, office commission officers. Uh, so, yeah, it's a unique program. And I, I have, me personally, I have nothing bad to say about it, but I went to a pretty good office. There's, if you talk to some other people, like maybe 10% of the, the fellows that were like, oh, it sucked. Well, that's just because they, the office they went to, they didn't get along with the staff or they, they just had a bad experience in that, in that member's office, you know, like, cause you don't necessarily get the pick. I, I think I got a little bit of a preference cause we get a list of the senators and the congressmen of, and you can like pick your top three, and uh, so I did that, but um, like I knew that, like I, we had some people go to like Barbara Box. I don't know if you remember Senator Barbara Boxer uh -huh. or like uh, I don't know if Feinstein had one, but some like super uber uh, liberal people. Again, not not getting into politics, but you know if you're a career army dude and you're like lean a little bit more right or more conservative, you know. And you get put in this super liberal office with a bunch of, you know, pink haired, you know, <laughs> he she's and neck beards and Che Guevara wearing shirt dudes. I mean, you might not have a good experience. Right. But I had a good experience. You know, everybody in the office, you know, I had I got along with everybody pretty well. They're all young. A bunch of all the staffers are like, you know, 22 to 26 years old. And here I am like some 40 year old. Uh, you know, crusty what, E9. What was what was your job as a crusty E9? Like, like is your job to advise them on like the needs of the military? No. So what <laughs> what I mainly my main job was to uh, to uh, attend or have the host the meeting uh, with all of the military affiliated. Uh, people who wanted to come and visit with the Senate, the senior Senator from mm -hmm. Texas. So mm -hmm. any uh, defense contracting company out of Texas or any of the, like uh, the commanding general of Fort hood or, you know, any other military type people who want to visit with the Senator, um, they'll schedule the meeting. And then when they go to show up, it's me. They, they're not meeting with the Senator. Usually it's very, it's very rare. Uh, that they actually get the meeting with the center. So when they say, when this general from wherever says, Oh yeah, I met with Senator so-and-so, they probably didn't actually meet with the center. Sometimes they do, but it's usually with uh, the MLA, the military legislative assistant, or it could be a, a military fellow like me, you know, some knuckle dragon uh, E9. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, I met with Senator Hutchinson. Really? Now you met with Jesse. Uh, <laughs> so I, I mean, in that year, I probably, uh, you know, sat in uh, hundreds, probably 300 of those meetings, you know, at least at least one or two per day, it seemed like. Um, so that's that's what I did mainly. I handled some constituent issues um, if because they had like they had, she had a huge staff. Right? I mean, Texas is there's 25 million people or whatever. So she had a big staff. And there's several people devoted to just constituent issues because there'd be literally thousands of uh 
you know, mostly emails, but also phone calls and handwritten letters and stuff that come in with their complaints or issues uh, throughout Texas. So they have a whole, you know, team dedicated to answering those. And they do at least try to send some sort of response to, to everybody. It might just be a blanket response like, oh, the senator acknowledges your whatever. But if there are some specific ones that they didn't know about or they couldn't, weren't sure how to answer, primarily if it dealt with anything in special operations, uh, then they'd be like, hey, Jess, can you take a look at this? Can you handle this? Can you call this guy or whatever? So I did a few of those. Uh, I wrote a few speeches for her. Uh, she gave a uh she was the keynote speaker at the annual VFW convention they had in 2000. This would have been 2011. Um, it was somewhere in Texas. So I wrote that speech for, uh, after bin Laden got killed, I wrote her, her, uh, floor speech, uh, for that. Um, and I also set up a meeting. This is where I got a huge, some like kudos, uh, from her as I was able to set up a meeting with her and, uh, Admiral McRaven. And she was like, she was like a giddy, you know, like a schoolgirl uh, meeting him. <laughs> so that how, worked out. I have to ask, though, because, you know, admittedly, like self-admittedly, you weren't a fan of high school, right? I mean, you'd rather be out drinking and playing poker. And, yep. and you know, hunting. And, and you didn't like team events in SF. You know, you'd rather <laughs> no. be out by yourself. So now yep. not only do they send you back to school, but they send you in a play well with others environment were you was did it were you ready for that at that time because of your experience as the military did you like how did how did you go from that kid to to that adult you know that you know sergeant major yeah because it's like because i was uh i was acting i was like role playing right it's like when i was doing the clandestine stuff i was pretending to be someone else or doing you know in the disguise or whatever uh, trying to blend in. And I, so I did that for a few years. So now I'm trying to blend in. I'm like, uh, I'm like, a, you know, I'm a college kid, right? Yeah. I'm 40 years old, but I'm in this, I'm in a, I'm a full-time student. So I'm going to just do my college stuff. And, uh, you went to protest, dyed your hair. <laughs> uh, yeah. Smoking dope and growing yeah. my hair long. Yeah. You know, uh, no, I didn't, I didn't go that far. Like I still like, so the good thing is most of the classes I took were very specific for the, it was at the graduate school of political management. And most of the classes, um, the majority of us in the class, like where my, were the other fellows. So it was all these other army captains and majors. Um, so I wasn't in there with a bunch of punk, you know, purple haired, uh, you know, dope smokers. It was probably over half of my class of all my classes. And I took, you know, a lot, um, but over half the class was the other army fellows. Right. So it wasn't, uh, that much of a shock for me. You know, if I would go like, like, if you send me right now to the university of Wisconsin, Madison, yeah, I'm not going to be able to play well with others there. That's not going to, or, or to Berkeley. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to fake it there. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, fit in no matter like I'm not that good of an actor uh but yeah I had I had no I had no real issues I think the I struggled a little bit with uh because I wasn't a good student in high school and even my bachelor's degree dude it took me like uh 
it took me like 18 years to get my bachelor's degree <laughs> right after just like taking a class here, taking a class there. All the maps and Dante's and clap or the exactly. clap and Dante's. Right. Yeah. I was that guy. So it wasn't yeah. until I went to the Sergeant Majors Academy and they're like, holy shit, man, you have all of these credits. If you just get all these transcripts and put them all together, you know, and take like, I had to take maybe like three or four more classes at the Sergeant Majors Academy. And they're like, so I got my degree there, but it took, you know, 18 years, uh, <laughs> 17 years. It took a long time. Um, so I didn't have really good, you know, study habits and this academic, uh, you know, lifestyle. I mean, I just, I didn't have a good system for my note-taking and my research ability. And, uh, you know, now they're like, Hey, you have to write a 20 page, uh, paper on this topic. And so <clears throat> I probably struggled a little bit, you know, compared to some of my other classmates who were like real, like academic, uh, smart people. Most of them already had a, one or two master's degrees. Um, but I, you know, I adapted and caught up quickly and I don't think I look like too much of an idiot by the time, uh, I mean, by the time it, it was done, they thought I was just another, you know, snot-nosed captain. <laughs> so your, uh, your, your military career does go on after this fellowship and getting your bachelor's degree. And I, I want to ask you, you know, the next assignment was going to be the ISAF soft command sergeant major. I mean, what was that job like? Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. Like now, this is you're the sergeant major over like an international soft element, essentially a task force, if you will. Yeah, it was it was huge. Uh, so what happened in uh, 2012 was they created uh, Sajidif Alpha or slash NSOC Alpha, which I know there's a lot of acronyms there, and there's acronyms within acronyms, which always bother me. NSOC Alpha, you know, the N and NSOC stands for NATO, NATO Special Operation. So NATO itself is an acronym. So I, I had an issue with that. In IJC2, the ISAF Joint Command, you can't put an acronym within an acronym. Right, right. Anyway. It's like a Mabushkin uh, or what were those dolls? The Russian nesting yeah, dolls? The dolls. <laughs> for acronyms. <laughs> anyway, it just bothered me. But uh, 2012, they created NSOC Alpha uh, slash Sajidif Alpha, which uh, was a two-star command. So basically, it was a division-level command. And it had like a division size of troops. They probably had uh, 14,000 troops in it. And what they did is they took all special operations forces that were in Afghanistan, all NATO and partner, uh, partner nation forces. So countries like, you know, Australia and whoever who are in you know, New Zealand or whatever, they're, they're our partners, but they're not NATO. So you can't just call it NATO. <clears throat> so 29 different nations of all of their, their soft, and they put them under one headquarters, which was commanded by a two-star guy named uh, uh, Tony Thomas at the time, who went on to be a four-star and take SOCOM later. So he stood up uh, Sajidif Alpha 2012. And then uh, I went over there like, January of 2013, and uh, <clears throat> they initially sent me to the Sajidif Alpha J5 uh, to be the, the sergeant major there because that office, um, they did really good stuff. In it. But I didn't know shit about J5, you know, plans and stuff. And I'm like, I'm, a, I'm an operator. I'm a door kicker, you know, and here I am doing this uh, this admin stuff. So that was a, that was a, 
a little bit of a challenge for me just because it was it was so different. But this office, there was like 12 dudes in there. And they were all uh, like senior officers. There was two majors and uh, and two colonels and then, a, you know, like eight freaking lieutenant colonels, <clears throat> but no NCOs. Right. So they're like, hey, hey, Jess, you need to go over there. They need a little bit of, you know, just simple stuff like, uh, you know, some you know, developing a training outline and stuff like that and some some PT or whatever they um, I mean, obviously I, I had some other tasks besides that, but, uh, yeah, I had, had, uh, learned a lot there. Uh, met a couple of good guys. In fact, one guy named Eddie, he is, uh, he's retiring next week as a 06. I'm going to fly out, uh, to his retirement ceremony. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, we worked there for a while. And then, um, a few months later, uh, I got a call from the Brigadier General over at ISAF Soft, who is an Australian who, initially worked in the J five. So he knew me and then he went over and took ISAFs off. Well, his senior enlisted advisor, uh, had to leave, uh, go back to the States. Uh, it was a Navy SEAL. So he's like, Hey, Jess, can you come over here and be my CSM? I'm like, hell yeah. So, uh, I went, you know, made the big trip from camp integrity over to, uh, Kaya, the Kabul, uh, air airfield there. And, uh, so for the next, however many, you know, eight months or so, seven, eight months probably. Um, yeah, it was the, the CSM at a one-star level for ISAF soft, which had so all of the task forces from these 29 different uh, countries. Um, so Sajidif Alpha, and it might be different. I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I mean, not now, we're not there, but I don't know how long it stayed in effect after I left in 2014. But, you know, Sajidif Alpha had, four different components in it. And, and one of those components was ISAF soft. And that was all the international dudes, you know, the Germans, the, the Poles, uh, the Danes, you know, everybody. There's, like I said, 29 countries. What, you, uh, you went from being an operator to somebody with a 30,000 view, foot view. Like, did you enjoy that? Did you, did you like, did you strap hang? Did you get on some ops with, with these other, like, how did that, you were in an office. How, how did you adapt? Did you enjoy it? Uh, I enjoyed that a lot more than I enjoyed the, uh, the J five job. The J five job was monotonous and it was all of this admin stuff. Um, but then I go over to be the CSM yeah. of ISAF soft. And now I'm like snap linked into a, you know, a very uh, competent and well-respected Australian Brigadier General um, who, you know, I mean, he's a general officer, right? So he's getting treated very well and I'm with him everywhere it goes. So we're getting all these, we're going to visit all of these task forces. You know, um, there's 22 different task forces scattered throughout uh, Afghanistan. So, you know, so we'd go way up to, to Maz, we'd go out to Herat, we'd go, uh, down to uh, Kandahar, we'd travel all over Afghanistan on these, you know, these VIP flights. And we have all these meetings with uh, the commanders of the task force, but also the local Afghan, uh, you know, leaders. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I drank a lot of freaking bad tea, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but nobody, tried, I mean, nobody tried to feed you uh, goat guts though. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but I had some meals that were, yeah, not so good. Um, yeah, I guess I liked it because it was, it was different. You know? Right. I get bored with doing the same monotonous thing over and over. And that's, you know, I don't, that's why I don't work on a factory. Right. Uh, I like a little bit of the unknown and some being surprised a little bit by uh, something different. So well, that what, was, that was different. Was it kind of cool being like the CSM of like Tom Clancy's rainbow six, like this international <laughs> soft element. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's not like, uh, <laughs> it's not like I was like, holding pt formations for <laughs> yeah no i get it i right. get it you know i mean right yeah i mean it was it was just a, a yeah it was just a, a figurehead position mm-hmm. you know i wasn't i wasn't writing any uh you know ncoers for you know the german sk uh ksk guys <laughs> right, you know, right wasn't like that and the <coughs> excuse me the uh you know, you, you finished out your career as the command sergeant major of 1st Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group, which is forward deployed or forward stationed, I guess you could say, in Germany. What was that like for you going back to SF after all those years? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was so it, it was. It was different, uh, and I will say that it was better than it was when I left Special Forces, you know, 25 years before then or whatever. It was a long time. Um, I don't know if it's 25 years. I left Special Forces in early uh, 1998, and then I went back in 2014. So whatever the whatever that math is. Um, yeah, uh, a lot had changed, but some things were were the same, um, especially with the the forward station uh, battalion because they're they're like they're the coolest guys in town. Right. And they, so they might have a little bit of a chip on the shoulder. Like, yeah, there's, we're the, we're the badasses in, in Europe. Right. And so it just, I don't know. I just, I sometimes saw a little bit of, you know, that arrogance that was really kind of un, unwarranted, maybe unearned or whatever, but I, I would, I did want to go there. That was my, my choice, I said, I want to go to either 2nd Battalion or, uh, correction, it was either 3rd Battalion, 10th Group at Fort Carson or 1st Battalion, 10th Group at uh, in Stuttgart, Germany. But I was leaning a little bit towards Stuttgart, and my wife definitely was because her mother lives in Germany. Oh, cool. uh, She's a fluent German speaker. Um, and then I kind of was also because that's my initial plan when I was a private was to be in 110. Uh when I, when I was a private in Germany in the third ID and I got the briefing from the, from the cool green berets, I'm like, that's what I want to do. I, you know, I want, and I had it all planned out. I was going to be an 18 Delta special force medic. I was going to learn Russian and I was going to be on the A team and 110 in Stuttgart, Germany, Panzer concern. Cause at that time, it was just 1991. They were just moved from bad Colts, mm-hmm. uh, Germany to, to, uh, Panzer in Stuttgart. So that's what I wanted to do. And then I went and did this whole other career. And then finally, you know, whatever, uh, so many years later, I have an opportunity to go to 110, right. not just to be on an 18, but I'm, I can be the CSM of the, of the battalion. So, uh, and there's a, definitely a lot of history. There. I mean, they're called the originals. That was the first, 
Special Forces Battalion in the U.S. Army. You know, June uh, 19th, 1952, they were created. That was that was the first special, the first Green Berets, the first Special Forces guys was right there. Uh, so that was kind of that was kind of cool. I I don't regret uh, any of it. In fact, I, I don't have really any regrets throughout my whole career. But um, it wasn't super enjoyable. I had some unique challenges. I had some you know, it's a lot of discipline issues that I just never really had to deal with. Uh, definitely not at the unit. Um, I mean, there's some, you know, there's some criminals in the, in the special forces community. You know, I had some just, uh, yeah, a lot of discipline <laughs> issues. I wasn't really expecting that. Um, but uh, I don't think I was a super popular guy because, uh, you know, I kind of, maybe put people in their place a little bit. I'm like, you know, the operators who are like, I'm the baddest dude there is. I'm like, actually, you're not that much of a badass. And, and here's why. And here's your times on that last hit. They weren't that great. And, you know, why are you doing it this way? When So I kind of, you know, put them in their place. And then the support guys are like, hey, we're, you know, we're just as important as, you know, the operators. Uh, we're just as good as the Green Berets. And, you know, they need us. They can't do their mission without, without, you know, what, whatever, pick, pick a support MOS, uh, you know, admin, they can't do shit without the admin support and blah, blah. So I would lay it out to them. I'd be like, Hey dude, um, if every single green beret went away from this battalion, you support guy would no longer have a job. You wouldn't have a purpose. You wouldn't have a job. I said, but if every single support guy went away, the Green Braves would still have a job. So don't try to tell me that you are more important and they can't do shit without you. So I, I just had a tendency to kind of, you know, yeah, uh, take take it take it take it down one notch. Yeah, yeah, crush yeah, just kind of like equally. So some people, I think, they like open their eyes, but I think a lot of people are just like. And this guy's kind yeah. of a dick, and we can't wait till his time is up. <laughs> so you know, and I instituted some you know, some PT standards and stuff like that. Um, you know, had guys do an 18 mile road march with a 40 pound rock in four and a half hours, you know, not, not super hard, but I mean, if you're a, uh, if you're even a support guy, uh, cause everybody in the battalion, had to, even if you're a support guy in a special force of battalion, a forward station, special force of battalion, you should be able to rock 40 miles. I mean, sorry, you should be able to rock 18 miles in four and a half hours with a 40 pound rock. Um, and surprisingly, there were a few Green Berets who didn't quite meet that standard. And, uh, you know, so they got embarrassed. Guys don't like being embarrassed. And I'm the one that embarrassed them. So, yeah, I wasn't a super popular guy, I don't think. But I'm okay with that. I think I I, I brought a few positive uh, changes, I hope. So, yeah, that was the end of my military career, though. And retired in 2016. And since that time... You know, where did you end up settling down and, and tell us about how you got into local politics? Uh, yeah. So I retired and moved back to Wisconsin. Uh, I I'm really a big fan of Wisconsin. I mean, I was born a racer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know. I just, I just really like this state. It's got some unique features that, you know, other states don't have. And it's kind of out of the way. Like it's hard. Most people don't like accidentally drive into or through Wisconsin, like you have to make an effort to, to come here, probably like, like Maine, you know, you don't just 
accidentally passed through there. Um, so I didn't move right back to like my hometown. I'm, I'm probably about two hour and a half, two hours away from where I actually grew up, more up in the North Woods. Uh, no, no farms around here. People think Wisconsin's all farms and cows and stuff like that. There's, there's, you know, no fields or farms around here. It's all, it's all woods and lakes where I'm at. <clears throat> um, so local politics. Um, I'm like, yeah, I moved back here, and I, I kind of wanted to get integrated a little bit, assimilated into this community. And uh, so I'm like, hey, I'm gonna buy a house. I'm gonna start a business. I'm gonna put my kids in the school, and and I just kind of wanted to make this my permanent home, probably for the rest of my life. And uh, the problem with this town is uh, it's real uh, touristy, and uh, so if you weren't born here and raised here, then and you're not from here and you'll kind of always be an, an outsider. So I, it took me a few years to realize that, but <clears throat> one of the things I was going to try to do to get, you know, assimilated and, and welcomed was to maybe get into local politics. So I ran for the school board uh, probably about uh, four or five years ago and, uh, and I lost and I'm like, okay, that was a good learning uh, adventure. So I wasn't upset about losing. Uh, I, you know, I'm not like, that's it. I tried one and done. I'm out. I'm like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to see, look at some other options. In fact, I was planning to probably run for school board again, if there was another opening, but an opening came up for a county board supervisor in my district. So I, I got on the ballot and I, you know, ran, uh, an effective campaign, you know, and, uh, and I, I won. Uh, probably by like 57, 56%, something like that. So bam, uh, I'm now county board supervisor. And I mean, it's uh, probably not a big deal in most people's eyes because there's not, there's only like 18,000 people in the whole county and there's 15 supervisors, you know, so my constituent base is like probably 1,100 people. Uh, but I really started to enjoy it. I got put on the zoning committee, which I was against at first, but I'm like, man, I really, I really like this zoning stuff. Uh, I think because, you know, I like those, those unique things that come up and yeah. I have to deal you're, with you're, them. You were a uh, CSM. Of course, you don't like people stepping on your grass. It's no, <laughs> right, it's no right. surprise that you're in a zoning. Right. How many, how many rocks have you had your, con <laughs> your, 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 your constituency paint? <laughs> Uh, no, I wasn't that. Consistent. No, I, I wasn't popular for other things, but it wasn't because I was that guy. I mean, I was the guy who had my, you know, hat off, hands in my pockets, walking across the grass, middle of parade field, probably flicking a cigarette, but I, I'm not, right, uh, right. so I wasn't a very good CSM in that aspect, but uh, anyway, so yeah, I'm on the county board and, uh, then I ran for reelection this in the spring of 2022, got reelected. In fact, I was unopposed. Nobody ran against me. And then uh, I'm on three committees and then I was elected the chairman of two of those committees. So, so yeah, I'm really enjoying that. And, uh, and uh, I was planning to, you know, maybe do that for a while, but uh, just between us, I don't know if you have any, any viewers here or not, but uh, I'm actually going to be moving probably this summer. So I'll be leaving this County going way down South um, to the next, next County South. Uh, oh, so not so like I'm Texas gonna, South, but next no, County. No, no, no. It's just no, between you, be, me, Dave, yeah. and the entire internet. And, no and one will ever find out. Yeah. 
So I'll still be, uh, I'll still be North of eight and uh, people from Wisconsin know what that means. But, uh, but since I'm leaving my district, my County, I, I have to resign from the County board. So, so that by uh, this summer, by June or so, I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, not, not doing that job, but I mean, that frees me up, you know, I'll, the next election is in uh, the spring of 2024. So maybe I'll look at running in, um, in my new County. Although I've already done some research on the the current supervisor for the district I'm moving to. And, you know, he seems like a real good guy. He's a retired uh, police chief from the, the city there and stuff. So, I mean, it's not like I want to. Yeah. Him. Yeah. You know, right. If he was some, some weirdo, you know, nut job. Then I'd be like, Oh yeah, I gotta, gotta get rid of this person. Right. But I mean, he seems to be a, a good guy and, and people like him and stuff. So I don't feel a need to. Right go right. in there and oust him. Uh, right. I, I think, I think it's really great that you, you know, after your retirement got involved in local politics and making a difference in the local community. And, you know, I, I hope you'll continue that wherever you settle down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was also on the, I was at the vice president of the local, uh, of the veterans community center as well too, but I kind of had a falling out with those guys. I don't know. I think they saw my podcast where I was kind of talking bad about the, about the VFW and the, some of the veteran service organizations. <laughs> they're like, no, that's, that's actually not true. Cause I, I resigned a month before I did that podcast. So now I just wasn't uh, agreeing with some of their, the way the direction they were going. So uh, anyway, I made an effort to, to, uh, to fit in, in this County and they, they haven't accepted me. So try the next County. It, it, yeah. Is there, is there a strong veterans community where you're at? Like it's, it's such a small area, but does it, does it have a bigger veteran community than say larger areas that are there are more urban? I mean, I think that's the case across America. I mean, if you, uh, and I don't know why that is. I, well, for instance, let me give you a, a number and I don't, have a lot of stats but like i said there was 34 people in my graduating class seven of us um went into the military out of 34 so that's a huge percentage yeah, i mean sure. what's a national yeah, yeah. average you know right. uh, i think it's you know wh- whatever there it's low uh so i think people from maybe more rural areas and smaller towns um you know they can't make up for the numbers you're going to get from los angeles and houston yeah. and new york but percentage wise it's probably a higher percentage from those less populated areas and maybe that's because and i think one of the reasons why at least where i'm from is because there's just there's, there's no opportunity there. there's nothing there it's not like you're gonna graduate high school and then go what are you gonna do there's very there's just not a lot of opportunity for careers right there so i, I think I, that's I, one of the i graduated high school in westchester county new york which is sort of the suburbs of new york city and mm-hmm. I'd say a class of 120, I think I was the only person to go into the military. And the entire, oh, yeah. the entire school looked at me like I was weird for doing that. Like, what are you doing, man? Yeah. In, th- in fact, I read uh, the state that has the highest um, percentage or per capita people that go into the military. And this was several years ago. I read this like over 10 years ago, but it was North Dakota. Right. Wow. So yeah. obviously the highest numbers come from California, Texas, and Virginia, because they have huge populations, right, right, right. but the highest percentage of military enlistees was North Dakota. It was like, they were over 4%, I think of their wow. yeah, that makes military sense. age. 
Yeah, because I mean, what's in North Dakota? A bunch of right. nothing, you know? Right. So, How do you get right. out of that? So you said, uh, because this isn't live, we, we couldn't take viewer questions, but you said that there were some questions that you had received, like on your Instagram. I don't think we had, uh, and stuff that you wanted to take. Uh, on ja- on, I saw some on Jack's I'll pull, uh, I'll pull mine. I'll okay. pull mine up right now. Because I, I don't think we got any on Patreon, did we, D? No. Okay. But we definitely want to get to those questions. All right. Let's see what I have here. Or I can look on mine, too. I know that there was some of mine. But, I mean, I could just be making up questions. <laughs> Who's the best-looking guy you know, and why is it you? Okay, so uh, James Alexander asks, I've always been intrigued by the PT plans of guys at that level. Uh, respectful, respectfully, could you discuss his views on fitness and how he trained uh, in his time at the unit? Uh, yeah, I can I can talk about about my fitness uh, routine while I was was in the unit. I'm not gonna, so I'm definitely not a uh, like a CrossFit expert or some kind of physical training performance dude at all. But so the same the way I go about if I'm instructing someone on how to shoot, I don't necessarily tell someone how to shoot. I just show them how I shoot. So my uh, PT routine in the unit was uh, I went to the gym very, uh, I will say, infrequently. I maybe went quite often, uh, maybe three days a week, but after about 15 minutes, I get really bored at the gym. So I'm not a gym guy, I'm not a gym rat at all. I do my 10, 15 minute, you know, workout, get a little swole on, but my main workout was uh, doing obstacle courses. And the, the reason, uh, why I think that that is important is because, I mean, look at what our job was, you know, if we're, you're doing operator stuff. And like I said, all those houses had walls around. So you're going up to a house at night under nods, all this kit, you got to climb up over a wall. You got to balance on this narrow, you know, maybe, you know, four or five inch top of this brick wall, you know, worth a 10 or 12 foot drop. So you're balancing on there. Then you have to go up here, maybe set up a ladder, climb up here, maybe pull yourself up and some other kit. So I think ways to uh, be able to kind of maneuver and manipulate your body in and around things and over obstacles. I mean, that's so translates so practically into what we did as our mission on a nightly basis. So my, my routine was once or twice a week, I would do what we call the, uh, the gate to gate where I would run from, uh, the bay all the way down range. And we had two pretty, uh, sophisticated obstacle courses. One was the long obstacle course and the other was the short one. So I would run down there, not in full kit, usually, usually just, uh, my, uh, BDUs and, and boots. Um, and I would do the long obstacle course. And then the short obstacle course. And then on the way back, I would hit uh, all the range walls. So I'm going over the walls, climbing up over buildings, shipping containers. And uh, that, that was my main uh, workout is, is doing uh, just the obstacle course. You were, and then you were a I combat did, focused PT guy. It's very functional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's functional. And then because if you got these big muscle dudes who are just in there like, hey, I can bench press 500 pounds. Yeah, but you can't freaking, you have no cardio uh, 
uh, cardiovascular endurance, and you're not going to be able to to hump a ruck, you know, five miles in, and you're not going to be able to climb up the outside of this three-story building, you know, which we've had to do uh, with with kit, and your balance might not be great on this wall at night with nods. Um, so it was more important for me if a guy was kind of like like a little spidery and wiry kind of guy, and more of a like a triathlete type body than the uh, than the bodybuilder dude. You know, there's some there's some real big muscle guys and, and they, they perform well. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from them, but um, there were only, and we didn't do organized PT. Like everything is on your, like I said, it's individual, you know, selection is an individual event and selection is an ongoing process. So, but there were a couple times uh, when I did team events that incorporated quite a bit of PT. Uh, one of them, I remember setting up uh on that long obstacle course, I actually set up paper targets, uh, you know, little bad guy cutout targets. And then I had the guys go down there in full kit, but with their sim, sim munition rifles. And on every single obstacle in the middle of the obstacle, they had to engage a target. So they might be on a, a rope 20 feet off the ground doing a commando crawl. And there's a target. They have to get their weapon out while on the balancing on the rope and engage a target. So stuff like that is, it's very, it's, it's, combat effective you know physical uh performance training that worked well for me so that was my routine i think that's the only question i had on on actually on my instagram <laughs> uh let, let me, uh i mean i don't know i'm not like i don't have to answer uh weirdo questions no please do weirdo though. questions like, no, no, no. we like we, you're gonna make if, me uh i gotta no, put on my glasses yeah that, uh, look if you don't i'll put mine on so you don't feel bad are yours the Amazon specials? Because mine are. Yeah, I actually got some prescription. Bifocals, All right, here, but... here we here we go. I'm on I'm on your Instagram now, Jesse. Okay. Uh, let's see what kind of weirdo questions I can pull out of here. No, don't don't do because there's a couple weird weird ones I saw in there that. Okay, I... here's um. Well, here's one. I don't know if you could speak to this or not. Uh, is there anything you could say about the Iraqi Mohawk program? Ah, man, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, I mean, we've been out of Iraq for a while now. Um, I don't, I don't know the sensitivity on it. I'm sure it's not classified. Obviously it's not classified because we're using freaking host nation, host nation, indigenous people with, without a security clearance, but, uh, that doesn't mean it's not sensitive. So, uh, the Mohawk program was, basically just grabbing up some Iraqis, uh, you know, good, like good Iraqis, if, uh, if that makes sense. And they, they probably, a lot of them were prior military, but not all of them. So they were in the Iraqi army. And so they had some, some form of discipline and some military training and they knew how to work a gun and maybe even a GPS. But so we would recruit some of these guys and uh, give them a, a little extra training and uh and then maybe some equipment and we would use them to mainly just to help identify um and pinpoint uh some targets for us so um because they're they're iraqis they can go wherever they go to the local coffee shop and and they they blend in they don't have to put on disguise or use a fake name or whatever because you know they live there that's their town right so they can get information for us um and then if they find out where, uh, 
you know, maybe this bad guy lives because they have a description of the house. You know, it's the third house on the right on the street, green door, whatever. Then we can give them a little GPS and they can actually go there and we teach them how to use it. So they can hit mark their, uh, their waypoint or they can take a picture with the camera we gave them and then they bring that back to us. So now we have an exact 10 digit grid and maybe a picture of the door or whatever. Uh, so <clears throat> there may be other things that, that they did. I had very limited uh, interaction with those guys, but I do know that we use them like me personally for some getting that 10 digit grid on a target that, that I couldn't maybe go into that neighborhood because, you know, they had an early warning system and I, I look, you know, like a, a Westerner or an American of Northern European descent. So, um, yeah, I'm not probably going to go into any more on that. This, uh, he's also asking about Marawai, which was, a, that was the Philippines after you, uh, that, that battle happened after you retired. So, um, there we are. never heard of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, someone else is asking, he'd like to hear a little bit about trapping, uh, in your experience, uh, trapping, if you, you have anything you'd like to lay on us about that. Oh man. So here we go. This is all right. This is, this is what I do. Uh, I get to talk about trapping. I thought it was just going to be about commando stuff. Uh, yeah. So I have not probably a lot of hobbies. I used to be really big into buying and selling antiques, but I just completely lost interest in that uh, a few years ago. But I used to trap a lot as a kid. Like I said, I, I started trapping by myself when I was eight. Um, caught my first muskrat when I was eight years old. I trapped with my dad before that when I was like, my dad used to trap for like a living. He fed his family uh, off of, you know, trapping and, and poaching deer or whatever. So uh, I learned from him and I really enjoyed it. So I didn't get to do very much of it, obviously, when I was in the army. So I'm like, when I when I retire, I'm going to, you know, here's a couple of things I want to do. I want to buy and sell antiques and I want to run a trap line. So in 2016, I went, you know, bought all these traps and and, and started uh, trapping. But it was like, it's like, man, it had been so long. I had to relearn. Uh, I had forgotten a lot of you know, uh -huh. what I thought I knew. So I was I would watch dozens and dozens of YouTube videos. Uh, which are really helpful. Uh, like, okay, here's how you trap a coyote. Here's how you trap a beaver. Here's how you trap a mink. Because it's, it's very different for a lot of different uh, species of fur-bearing animals. And uh, uh, I, I do enjoy trapping canines, you know, the fox and coyote, but we just don't have a whole lot right around here. And that's because we have a huge amount of wolves around here. The wolves just kill every coyote. You say, in fact, I didn't set a single coyote trap this year. Last year, I set six and on my second check, I had a big old male wolf in there that are not fun to uh, release. <laughs> because, uh, you know, because I don't, I don't have a tag. I can't, I can't kill him because I had to release him. Oh, he, he, he wasn't grateful? Like, he wasn't grateful that you were releasing him? Yeah. He didn't become your no, best friend? It, <laughs> no. In the year before, I caught another one. And, uh, and then also, my, in my canine sets, I tend to catch a lot of bobcat, which I only get one tag maybe every three years. I catch a lot of fisher, which I only get one tag maybe every other year. And all of the, so all of those I have to release. So I've released a lot of bobcat fisher and two wolves over the past couple of years. So <laughs> oh, man. not so I kind of lost my interest in trapping uh canine. So I've really the past couple of years started focusing on beaver trapping, which uh it's it's actually a lot of fun. 
and talking about PT, that's like only PT that I do now is I trap beaver. And that is a freaking workout. Like you want to burn like tens of thousands of calories, go out trapping beaver, especially now in early February with two and a half feet of snow and a foot of ice. Uh, it's a, it's a lot of work, uh, trapping beaver, but it's also a lot of fun. And the good thing is the price, well, maybe not the good thing. So because the price of fur is really low, there's hardly anybody trapping. Like I never, there's maybe only three other trappers in my whole county. Now I'm in a big county, like area wise, it's the fifth largest in the state. So because nobody's trapping, there's a huge amount of beaver. They're like overpopulated. Like people call me up in the summertime, you know, when it's not even beaver season, they're like, can you come and trap beaver? They're eating all my, you know, decorative trees and destroying my shoreline or whatever else. So there's a lot of beaver. Uh, back last season, I trapped 110 beaver just, just here in this county, just around, you know, basically around the house. Uh, I got kind of a late start this year. I'm only up to, I think, 35, but uh, yeah, I was just out skinning a couple earlier today. Uh, so yeah, I, I have a YouTube channel that's almost exclusively beaver trapping. In fact, I need to branch out, put in some, Wait, okay, some what, other what, content. What's your channel for people who want to watch it? Uh, I was just called tier one trapper, but YouTube added yep. a couple digits on they there. They added so it's some YouTube. numbers to our names and stuff. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, right? so it's tier one trapper 747 uh, is my YouTube uh, handle. And like I said, almost all my videos are beaver trapping. I got I went on an elk hunt with my son this past fall in Idaho, so I put a video on there about that. There might be a couple other here and there, but most of them are, are beaver trapping. Jesse, but, I, uh, I, what, I'm sorry. Go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I think we really want to hear about how you released a wolf and a bobcat. Like, but but go ahead and finish what you're saying before you tell us that. Uh, I was going to talk about my trapping trip, but I'll, I'll tell you. So I have a I have a catch pole like a dog catcher would use. You know, it's a right, long right. fiberglass pole with a, a cable uh, noose, but it's only four feet long. Um, and the noose is only about 12 inches around. So surprisingly, Bobcat, uh, are the easiest for me to release. They, they snarl and they make a lot of hissing and noises and stuff, but they're not like, they don't try, they don't try to come at you. They don't try to hurt you or anything like that. Um, and when you get the, the noose around their neck and if you cinch it down, then they kind of you know, fight a little bit and jump around, but they're, they look mean, but they are, they're pretty, actually pretty docile. Uh, a big male fisher, they'll, they'll try to, to hurt you. Oh, really? uh, they, yeah. I don't know if you know what a fisher is. They're like a kind of like a, a smaller version of a Wolverine. They're in the same family. They're used to leads in the weasel family. Uh, like a big, really big mink or a small yeah. Wolverine, but really uh mean aggressive they'll like like i've had them like lunge at me uh so they're not as fun to release <laughs> the wolves are challenging as i've released two with my four foot catch pole and the first one was pretty easy it was a younger wolf and he was caught in a trap that was uh staked right there to the ground so he didn't have a lot of room to maneuver and uh that one was fairly uneventful but the one i caught last uh, last season, it was a big male and it was on a, on a drag, meaning it had an eight foot chain 
and he was in some cottle, tangled up in some thick brush. So now I have to go in this thick brush where this wolf, big wolf, well over hundred pounds has eight feet of chain uh, to maneuver. Right. So I actually called up the, uh, the local game warden. Uh, I know I'm like, Hey, do you mind coming out here? I said, I don't need any help, but I just want another responsible adult nearby in case, uh, in case, you know, I lose my footing or something goes wrong, you know? And, uh, so he's like, yeah, I'll show up out there. So he just, and he didn't help. He just stood there, took a couple pictures and stuff as I'm like <laughs> trying to go in there with this, uh, this catch pole. And like I said, it's got a 12 inch loop. Well, this freaking wolf's head was probably 13 inches Holy and big, shit. massive uh, teeth. And so I'd get that, that noose close to him and he would like snap at it with his teeth. And then he grabbed it. And now I'm like playing tug of war, <laughs> you know, like you would with your, with your dog at home with this freaking wolf. And uh, finally I was able, it took a while, but I was able to kind of force it over its head and cinch it down. And now I'm wrestling with this wolf and, uh, and then the, the warden did come in then and he held the pole while I was able to, to release the trap off its foot. And then he's like, handed me the pole back real quick. So now the wolf is out of the trap completely. The only thing keeping it uh, from freedom is me holding the stick with a noose around its neck. And, uh, you know, they're not, they're not gonna, they're not gonna like come in and attack you you know it's just one wolf by himself so you just release the the cable and, and they run off it's there's really not as much threat you know as, really i i don't think so i say that because you know <laughs> i i've been uninjured so far right. i know a couple people go to the binge there was there was a guys trying to release a black bear here in wisconsin i think two years ago and they were going up with a a sheet of plywood which is a technique you cut out a little hole in the bottom of the plywood and but they didn't have handles on the plywood they were just kind of holding on to the top or the sides and the guy get his uh finger bitten completely off by this bear <clears throat> and then i know a couple people have gotten scratched by uh bobcats and stuff like that trying to release them but uh yeah i mean it just adds to the excitement <laughs> I think I'd go out there and chain mail if I had yeah, to release something yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> quite, you know, quite, yeah. Just a full suit of chain mail and curl up in a little ball once I let them go. Jesse, so one thing, what I was going to mention is my uh, upcoming uh, trapping trip that I'm planning. I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about this. And I don't, I don't know, it, I don't usually get real excited about things anymore, unfortunately. But I'm planning a uh, like a six or maybe even eight week trapping solo trapping trip up to the interior of alaska this next fall from probably like mid-october to early december and i'll be targeting wolverine and lynx and martin and wolves up there so i can i can i can actually kill a wolf uh up there if i catch one so i'm really looking forward to that it's gonna be a good time i hope now when you go up to a place like alaska uh do they have bounties for a lot of those animals no, not, not in Alaska. Some places do. I've never trapped uh, any bounties. I think some of the Western states might, but I, I mean, I have trapped in, so I've trapped in South Dakota and Idaho uh, a couple times in both of those places. Uh, but Alaska is a different, I mean, I'm really looking forward to it just because you can, it, it's unlimited. I can catch as many Wolverine as I want. And not that I'm, probably going to catch you know i'm I'm hoping i get one but you know some guys get 20 up there a year 
but there's no real restrictions on trap placement and the sizes and the bait, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Where like here in Wisconsin, it's really uh, restrictive, and some states are you know even more restrictive than that. So, uh, and we have limits. Like I said, I can only get one bobcat over three years. Uh, up there, I can catch is unlimited lynx, unlimited marten, unlimited wolves. Uh, so I think it'll be a good time. Even if I don't catch anything, I kind of like being by myself in a tent for an extended period. Yeah, yeah, uh, that yeah. brings me uh, yeah. comfort. Now, do you, would you, do you enjoy trapping more than hunting? And if like, what, what yes. do you enjoy about each, what do you enjoy about trapping over hunting? Yeah, I, so in high school, especially I, I love uh, bow hunting and, and deer hunting was like the biggest, you know, holiday of the year. And I don't know. I just, I don't know, lost interest. Uh, there's a few other things that, you know, I used to enjoy that I don't enjoy as much. So I still hunt now, but I, I, I hunt for subsistence. I hunt to put meat in the freezer and mm-hmm. feed my family. So mm-hmm. I'm not at all a trophy hunter. You know, I'll get like one buck tag and, and four doe tags and I'll go out and shoot the first four deer I see. And then mm-hmm. I'm done. Freezer's full. And uh, so I don't really get unfortunately i don't get as much uh pleasure out of out of hunting as i used to but but trapping um i was really you know when i first retired i was like really into it and then it kind of tapered off a little bit and the past year uh i really started to get more into it you know with beaver trapping and stuff trying some new techniques i do mostly snaring under the ice for beaver which uh you know, it wasn't even legal back when I was in high school. Now I could do that. There's other things that, that I can do now that I couldn't do then. They've, they've changed. Uh, so, but even the canine trap, you know, coyote are pretty, pretty smart animal. I think they're a lot harder to catch than a fox. Um, I mean, if I'm trapping an area that has equal number of fox and coyote, I'll catch twice as many foxes really? as a coyote because, yeah, and people are like, oh, the fox are so smart right. and sly and everything. And maybe they are, but those coyotes are smarter and uh maybe not more sly but they're more like uh maybe skittish like Mm -hmm. if there's anything wrong if they smell anything out of place or anything looks out of place feels out of place they're they're gone and you won't catch them again uh but a fox you know you might miss them and then they'll they'll come back so to get this smart animal who's out who lives in the wild like he's he's an expert in survival right every day he's out there uh you know, surviving and he gets really smart to get that animal to come from a mile away to step on a little two inch circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that takes, uh, it's, it's challenging. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's rewarding when you, when you do catch uh, one of those smarter animals. Now beaver, they're just a, a big dumb rodent, right? They're, they're like a big lab rat. They're not super smart, but they can get educated. If you, if you miss one, yeah. screw up and the trap snaps in front of them, they're not going to, go near a trap again because now they know what it is and can harm them but other than that they're just pretty dumb rodents and like i said there's a lot of them around they're pretty easy to catch and uh yeah i enjoy it i'm, I'm trying to get uh my goal is to get a, a 100 pound beaver and i didn't even know people are like what beaver don't get that big i'm like they, they do there's like a 100 pounder caught almost every year in wisconsin wow the biggest i've caught is maybe like just over 80 pounds oh, this year shit. i haven't I've only gotten, I think, one that's 62 pounds, my biggest one this year. Jesse, uh, is there anything else you want to plug while we're here? I mean, I think you, you mentioned you had like a T-shirt company that you're, you're running off some T-shirts. 
show that off. Yeah. Friendly. So, uh, yeah, I got a, a t-shirt company. It's, uh, if you go to jingonow.com, I've got some, uh, some patriotic shirts and some that are kind of like dark humor. And, uh, so, you know, a jingo is, uh, you know, it's a patriot who's, uh, in favor of, of, of war usually. So, uh, that's where that name comes from. Uh, and my screen name on Instagram is friendly, but not your friend. So, uh, that's where that kind of, that's my bestseller, that friendly, but not your friend shirt. I just came out with some hoodies too. Cool. Uh, in that design. So yeah, jingonow.com got some shirts there. Um, I would like to plug a couple different companies, but sure. go ahead. It hasn't, it, but I can't quite yet. So I just got, uh, some offers to, uh, to be a pro staffer for a couple different companies. Um, but it's not finalized yet. So, uh, I'm kind of excited about that. Okay. You know, the if that happens, they're going to, yeah, if that yeah. happens, let us know and we'll plug you like we'll plug you on our Instagram and, you know, Twitter and, and wherever, wherever people do their social media shopping. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I already mentioned my YouTube channel, Instagram, website. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, All right. I don't, know, I don't really have uh, anything that I'm probably going to plug. I'll put on my Instagram. So I've got a few followers there. Uh, I've only got like... I don't even think I have 500 yet on on uh, YouTube. So again, that's my own fault though because I only put beaver crap in videos. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, but, so, but, but if you're trapping beaver... Those are perfect clickbait titles. <laughs> yeah, shaved yeah. beaver. <laughs> I, I've heard every uh, every beaver joke probably. Imagine. I know. But I did have. learn. I did learn a valuable lesson. though. so I'm, I'm, I guess, kind of fairly new to social media. I mean, I used to be on Facebook, but I'm not anymore. But Instagram, I've only been on there maybe two years, and uh, so I'm like, you know, catch this big, like black beavers. So I'm like hashtag big black beaver, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you get a whole new demographic. Of, right, right, <laughs> right, you, right. You that oh, well, that was God. like the Primus song, right? Winona's got to bring around beer. Yeah. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us, man, uh, tonight. Really appreciate it. A lot of fun. Uh, next, or this this Friday, we're going to have Joel Funk on. He was a uh, MH47 pilot. Uh, so check us out this Friday. We'll have him on. Uh, hopefully we'll have our internet situation fixed. Yeah, hopefully we'll have fixed. our internet uh unfucked by then um yeah but jesse thank you man really appreciate you spending some time with us tonight yeah hey it was my pleasure i this is my i think my fifth podcast or interview i've done now in the last year i did my first one almost exactly a year ago with uh, kyle lamb and uh yeah i do i enjoy him i mean it's i feel a little bit weird talking about stuff that i normally haven't you know sure, ever talked sure. about in, yeah. in the past but uh honestly they have been a little bit therapeutic i yeah. think for me too you know absolutely uh, you know, to talk about some of this mm -hmm. stuff. So I appreciate you guys inviting me on. Absolutely, man. Any, anytime, please stay in touch and, uh, you know, best of luck in the, the next election. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Have a good one. All right. Have a nice night. Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch 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 -ch
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.